So history of Westeros yeah, is your podcast? Yeah, definitely. Then, through the twisted, half-drowned trees and wide, wet streets, he glimpsed the silvery sheen of sunlight upon water. Another river, he knew at once, rushing toward the ruin. The ruins grew taller as the land grew narrower, until the city ended on a point of land where stood the remains of a colossal palace of pink and green marble, its collapsed domes and broken spires looming large above a row of covered archways. Tyrion saw more snappers sleeping in the slips where half a hundred ships might once have docked. He knew where he was then. That was Nymeria's palace, and this is all that remains of Nysar, her city. Yolo! shouted Yandri as the shy maid passed the point. Tell me again of those Westerosi rivers as big as Mother Roin. I did not know, he called back. No river in the Seven Kingdoms is half so wide as this. The new river that had joined them was a close twin to the one they had been sailing down, and that one alone had almost matched the Mandor or the Trident. This is Nysar, where the mother gathers in her wild daughter Noin, said Yandri, but she will not reach her widest point until she meets her other daughters. At Dagger Lake, the Hoyne comes rushing in, the darkling daughter full of gold and amber from the axe and pine cones of the forest of Cahor. South of there, mother meets Lorulo, the smiling daughter from the golden fields. Where they join once stood Croyan, festival city where the streets were made of water and the houses made of gold. Then south and east again for long leagues until at last comes creeping in Siloru, the shy daughter who hides her course in weeds and rides. There, Mother Roin waxes so wide that a man upon a boat in the center of the stream cannot see a shore to either side. You shall see, my little friend. Awesome is a word that gets thrown around quite a bit, generally as a synonym for great or similar words like that. And that's funny because it's a word used to exaggerate when in literal terms it describes situations like the opening quote perfectly. Mother Roin is awesome. And it's not just an opening quote about how cool and huge the Roin is, though. It's not just that at all. Nor is it just a scene preluding the reveal of Aegon VI. This is a scene that's also about Tyrion getting his groove back after a long depression. And part of the way this is accomplished is through awe. He's recalling his love as a child for the stories of Lomas Longstrider and the wonders of the world things that were a big part of his childhood, things that inspired him growing up. Tyrion is extra special to us for many reasons, but let me draw your attention to his love of history, as well as these stories of travel. This is something that he grew into after that. And they feature in his chapters more than most others because we're in his head, and when you're in the head of someone who loves history, well, you're going to get a lot of history via their thoughts and, of course, conversations. It wouldn't make sense for, say, Victorian to debate Halden Halfmeister on dragon lore or even think in great detail about the Ironborn and their history. That would be weird. I mean, he's going to remember maybe his grandfather or maybe a few other famous guys. He's not an expert on that. But for Tyrion, 
it's totally natural for him to think about things like that. Imagine Tyrion thinking how badly he wants to test his axe against the Knight of Flowers. Imagine Tyrion, like Victarion, wanting to give half his teeth to get involved in a famous duel. I mean, that's not like Tyrion at all. Jorah gives Danny books of songs and stories, and she's barely looked at them. Arianne is locked in a library with a bunch of awesome books on hand, but no. And John shuts down Sam mid-sentence while he's giving us all a cool history lesson on the Night's Watch and chronology. Kids those days, I tell you. The reader is kind of a version of this character, a smaller version. Well, not smaller than Tyrion, smaller isn't less important. Someone for whom history matters, and thus speaks to it competently. Someone who fits it into scenes without it seeming out of place, because this is a guy who likes history, so he's going to talk about history. He talks about Kingsmoot in the Ironborn chapters, for example. And this concept comes in other forms as well. It's not just history. Sometimes history comes in other packages, like... In Bran's chapters, we have stories, which are basically history, but they're delivered in a different format. You know, it's whether it's folk tales from Old Nan or the tournament at Harrenhal from the Reeds, it's all history. So a good reason to be aware of this device is that it's really fun, for one, but it can also be really important because A Song of Ice and Fire's history tells us A Song of Ice and Fire's future. These characters are, in effect, looking at the past to tell us what's next. When Tyrion looks at a history book, he sees the past, but we see the future. Cool trick, George. But how much more powerful is that effect when the character is living it instead of reading about it? For Tyrion, he laughs about snarks and grumpkins beyond the wall beforehand, but once he's actually standing on top of 700 feet of ice, gazing out into that vast dark wilderness, he takes it pretty seriously. It's like, wow, and, and it's that feeling again. He's filled with awe. It's kind of a dark, foreboding awe, but still. The experience that he had was nothing like what he heard and read about. The real thing couldn't be described in words. And here we are in a similar spot in the opening quote. Like he did with the wall, he looked down on what he had heard. He trusted over much and what had been written. But when he saw the Roin with his own two eyes, he understood that words would never have been able to convey what he was seeing. It's like he expected the stories to be exaggerated, which, to be fair, they so often are. You're not wrong when you hear exaggerated rumors and think, maybe I should tone that down. Maybe that's probably exaggerated. We all, in our daily lives, understand this phenomena. People love to take pride in local landmarks and, and features like that, after all. But sometimes the stories are true. Sometimes the truth is so stunning that exaggerating is almost pointless. Imagine reading, say, that the wall is a thousand feet high, which probably some people in Westeros have heard. They've probably heard that. It's probably rounded off like that, even though that's a 300 feet is a rather large rounding. But then imagine actually going to the top and standing way up there in the cold like Tyrion did, feeling that fear, that indescribable dread. Then someone leans in and says, actually, the wall's only 700 feet high. Are you really going to feel less awe because, oh, it's only 700 feet? I thought this was a thousand foot wall. Was, that's not going to matter. <laughs> Your overwhelming feelings are still overwhelming. That's what it was like for Tyrion, too. So, you know, urinating off the wall, something he planned on doing, he forgot about that. It just, the jokes and all the books and everything he'd read was gone. It was just 
this overwhelming, beautiful, disturbing, primal thing that he was witnessing. And hard logic and rationality were, were nowhere to be seen in that moment. Maybe he should have known better. Meaning, once Tyrion had seen the wall, maybe he should have realized that, you know, the Roin, maybe it was true. Maybe he should have prepared himself mentally. But he didn't. He loved the tales of Lomas Rongstrider. You know, he almost makes sense that he would have hoped that they were really as true as they sounded like. So, Lomas wrote of the wall... And Tyrion read about that. Apparently, he didn't do it justice. So maybe Lomas isn't just—it just isn't a great writer. <laughs> Lomas is no George R. R. Martin. The information is great, but you know, he didn't exactly have uh, you know selfies at the wall to put in his book. So yeah, we'll give Tyrion a pass there, and Lomas too. But really, the wall—it's just—and the roaring. they are just so incredibly, unbelievably huge, bigger than Tyrion's imagination could conceive of, and Tyrion can imagine quite a bit. He read about it countless times. Of course, he literally did imagine it a lot. But it still wasn't enough to prepare him for the real thing. So for keeping score, unlike the wall, Tyrion did pee in the Roin. But hey, that's that only makes it a little bit deeper, right? <laughs> Seriously, though, he spends a lot of time on the Roin and not that much time on the wall. He just goes up there that one time. He's near it a lot, but hmm, there's a lot more Roin seeing for him. Let's put it that way. A lot of opportunity for him to see all the sites along it, varied and vast and ancient and interesting. Nymeria's Palace is a big site that he sees along the way. And of course, because of who he is, he sees these things and gets to think about the history that he knows of them. Or someone like Halden Halfmaster or Yandri and Ysilla fill him in on those things. And of course, he gets to interact with some of the legacies of Nymeria and the Roinar, like the Stone Man, something he'd prob probably rather not do. And this all goes beyond Tyrion. Of course, this episode isn't about Tyrion. He's just our witness to a lot of these things. He's the only character with the POV that goes to the Roin um, for any length of time. So it's really important. Of course, he's our key there. And the name Nymeria not only stands out because of Arya and her direwolf. Obviously, you're going to think of, of her when we talk about Nymeria. But because Nymeria's story is key to the history of all of Dorne. That's another reason it's important. That's our main reason why we're here today. Arya introduces us to the idea of Nymeria with her direwolf, of course. Arianne Martell is inspired by Nymeria to act on her great bold plan of crowning Marcella. And of course, Tyrion visits Mother Roy in person while hearing her many of her ancient tales. But it's actually Daenerys whose story most matches that of Nymeria herself. So when I was talking earlier about the history of A Song of Ice and Fire tells us the future. It's specifically Danny's future that is most relevant to this. And that's kind of ironic, isn't it? Because it's Nymeria and her people fled their ancient home in large part thanks to Danny's ancestors. Which, you know, maybe helps conceal the parallel. But once you see it, you can't unsee it, right? Last of the Valyrian nobility compared to last of the Roinar nobility? Yes, indeed. Check. A very young female ruler? Check. Led their people through a variety of strange and exotic lands? Check again. Faced slavery, disease, and starvation? Check. Married three times? Okay, well, Danny has only married twice. But who really expects her to settle in with his dar? Like, that's where she's done? She's just going to marry his dar and never marry again? Nobody is who believes that. That's who. That's a political marriage. And hey, Nymeria's second husband was also a political marriage. How about that? Well, probably. He was very old. Eh, seems likely. So both Danny and Nymeria also held power after their first husband's death 
a difficult thing to do in general as a woman, but even harder to do when you're a foreigner. And yet they both have pulled that off. So Danny's third marriage is yet to come. And maybe she'll get married a fourth time. Maybe. Who knows? We, we can't see the future. But I'm guessing it's going to be three. And that would, if so, that would give us another parallel to Nymeria. Nymeria's third husband was Davos Dane. Hmm, a Dane? Ah, that could mean something. We'll see. And that's the point. The best part of all this might be that while Nymeria's story ended long ago, Daenerys' is still ongoing. And given how many strong parallels we have already, it makes sense that there are more left for us to uncover, like this marriage thing. That could be just one of many parallels. So this, a series on the history of Nymeria and the Rhoynar, is very likely going to tell us quite a bit about the future of Daenerys and her Kalisar. But it's also an amazing, fun story all by itself. We get to talk about a great number of places none of our favorite characters have been to, ones Tyrion has only read about, some he would love to see himself, and many he'd do anything to avoid. So hello and welcome back to another episode of History of Westeros podcast. It's good to be back. We have had a busy several months with cons and with writing and with all sorts of fun stuff going on in the fandom, and we're excited for Fire and Blood coming out in a few months. That's going to give us a lot more ammunition. Not that we really need it. We have so much to cover. we got another Blood Raven episode coming up in the future. And this series is going to take us probably three episodes. Number one here is actually going to be mostly about the history of fallen kingdoms like the Rhoynar and Valyria. And even though it's a lot of ancient history, there's a lot of... We already saw a lot of Tyrion. There's going to be more Tyrion. Of course, Danny. It's going to be a little Arya, stuff like that. Part two is going to be... We'll say travelogue and adventure. I'm going to call it 10,000 Ships, I believe. That's my work and title. And it's got to be, we're going to see all these cool places like Sothorios and the Basilisk Isles and Nath and the Summer Isles. It's going to be really cool because each of those places, of course, we're going to do what we always do. Give you a history of those places, tell you what we know about them. And that'll be a lot of fun. Then part three is going to be about once Nymeria and her people get to Dorne. That's a whole story. Conquest, war, intrigue, politics, marriages, backstabbing, intrigue, like I said. Lots of fun stuff. That's going to be great. So, and it'll be a little more familiar. We might get into some really deep parallels. Well, I'm sure we're going to get into some really deep parallels. You'll see. But what's interesting here, too, about this first episode, even though this is a series on Nymeria, it's going to have the least of her out of the three because there's so much backstory and we're not shy about dialing into the backstory. So this episode's going to end with her people being led away from the Rhoyne as they're, they've just lost this giant war. And of course, before that, we'll have a lot of Tyrion, we'll talk magic, we'll talk water wizards and floods and how that interacts with dragons and fire and blood and all the magic of the Freehold. Other topics like Grayscale, the Water Gardens of Dorne, we've got a theory about that. The fate of Volantis, of course, Volantis is right there on the mouth of the Rhoyne and they're a big part of this history. And that's going to relate to Daenerys, of course. Anything to do with Volantis is going to be tied in with her. So, yet again, a historical topic that gives us a ton of insight into the future of A Song of Ice and Fire. Something you guys are really familiar with. All regular listeners know that. Our patrons are particularly familiar with that. And in fact, this episode was chosen by patrons. Past Patreon episodes include Septon Barth, Joanna Lannister, The Crypts of Winterfell... Well, probably our most famous, uh, famous, well, what a famous work, our most popular, most viewed 
um, patron voters episode. It's a lot of big hits there. You guys have done a great job of coming up with topics or voting on the topics that I put out there. And it's really fun. I'm really glad that we are doing that. And of course, they managed to pick a big topic that's going to take me a few episodes. We're going to take a few episodes to get through this, but it's going to be awesome. There's going to be so much to talk about. You too can support the show on Patreon and get things like votes on future episodes, as well as shout-outs, potentially artwork, cool names, things like that. Lots of different benefits. Check it out at patreon.com slash historyofwesteros. And speaking of shout-outs, let me say thanks to the long snapper, Jeff Gnarly, History of Westeros' first sword. As well as Lord Mark of House Joseph, the Snow in Winterfell, Rider of Masla Cartho, a white dragon with green scales, horns, wings, and talons. Rest in peace. Telenius the Talon, King of Gagasos, Rider of Telerius, a red dragon with scales, horns, and talons of Midnight Black. Jinx of House Lier, Green Queen of the Rainwood, rumored daughter of Woods Witch, Rider of Erogenia, a Sylphic albino dragon with amethyst eyes and opalescent wings. We also have a new dragon rider. He doesn't have art yet, but his name is really cool and the description of his dragon is really cool, so I can't wait to share that with you guys. I could have waited till we actually had art, but I'm going to say it now. The name is Robert IV of House Ardeacor, burned king of Blazewater Bay, rider of Atroxus, a black dragon with bioluminescent spots like smoldering embers and a banded blue tail. That is awesome. History of Westeros is part of the Agora Podcast Network. This month's featured Agora Podcast show is one I think you guys will really get a kick out of. It's called Lands of Leviathan, and it combines pop culture concepts and ideas and plots with real-world concepts, ideas, and plots. There's three episodes of theirs in particular that have Game of Thrones themes. Of course, Game of Thrones being such a big part of pop culture, that's not a surprise. Those are A Song of Power and Authority, Why We Need to Separate the Church and the Seven Kingdoms, and Trump's Iron Throne vs. Kim Jong-un's Ice Dragon. So check out Lands of Leviathan on Acast or iTunes. If you're wanting to read Plato, Aristotle, Locke, Kant, Wittgenstein, etc., but think you might need a little push to get it done, well, Online Great Books is the place to go. It's a unique program helping people learn the classics together. Go to onlinegreatbooks.com slash WES to get started. Nymeta. As the Rhine is made great by so many lesser rivers combined into one epic river, so is A Song of Ice and Fire great, in part due to so many different plot threads combined into one epic story. Most of the stories are, of course, inventions of George R. R. Martin, but also, of course, George R. R. Martin being a human being is heavily influenced by the world around him and the life experiences he's had. So let's think about that a minute. Well, Europe, okay, has two rivers that sound like the Rhine, the Rhine and the Rhone. Now we just need the Rhine, the Rune, and the Rain to complete the set. Eh, I'm not sure if we can go much further than name similarity, actually. Both the Rhine and the Rhine are very important rivers as borders, as sources of water, as facilitators of trade, etc. But that's basically what all rivers do. Besides the Rhine, our people parallel better to non-European peoples anyway. So they're not really, they don't really match up that well with a lot of European cultures. That's mostly something we learn later in A Song of Ice and Fire, though. The Rhine aren't thoroughly explained until Feast. And before that, most of what we know is inferred. The first time we just hear it 
every so often as part of the king's title, which you've heard, but I'll repeat here. King of the Andals and the Roinar and the First Men. Titles, 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 like Robert would say. We hear it applied to Robert and Viserys and Stannis and Joffrey and currently Tommen, but it's also, shall we say, strongly suggested for his sister Marcella, who at long last asks for an explanation on the Roinar. Marcella here is playing a bit of the classic fish-out-of-water trope here, asking questions to acclimate herself in a way that also acclimates the reader to the setting and details in kind of a natural way. Specifically, Marcella thought that the Roinar were the Dornish, and so do most readers at that point on their first read-through, in part because they were not major players early on, and in Feast, that's when they, you know, start to become more and more major and more part of the story, so... As they become more important, we need more details. And Ariane Martel here gives us the answer to Marcella's question. A feast for crows, the queen maker. We are in part your grace. Nymeria's blood is in me, along with that of Morris Martel, the Dornish lord she married. On the day they were wed, Nymeria fired her ships, so her people would understand that there could be no going back. Most were glad to see those flames, for their voyagings had been long and terrible before they came to Dorne and many and more had been lost to storm, disease, and slavery. There were a few who mourned, however. They did not love this dry red land or its seven-faced god, so they clung to their old ways, hammered boats together from the hulks of the burned ships, and became the orphans of the green blood. The mother in their songs is not our mother, but the mother Roin, whose waters nourish them from the dawn of days. Now, Arianne is a good example of someone that's a big fan of Nymeria. When she's Having her Princess in the Tower chapter, she's wishing she had some of Nymeria's stories to read. In Dorne, Nymeria's popularity is huge and mainstream. I mean, that's no one should be surprised by that. But some of the nuance to that is interesting. The famous Princess of Dorne who stood up to Aegon and his sisters, nicknamed the Yellow Toad, well, her name was Maria, which is Nymeria without the N-Y. And I think the N-Y is probably a meaningful prefix. I don't know what it means, but Nymeria's city was Nysar. Two words. So, that's an important word, or prefix, or something? I don't know. Aries Oakhart notes a tapestry of Nymeria and the 10,000 ships during his singular chapter, but that's surely not an uncommon sight around the Shadow City or Dorne in general. You know, art of Nymeria. That makes sense. Arya, of course, as we mentioned, is another huge fan, but this is where it's a little different. You know, she names her direwolf after Nymeria, of course, and later she names herself, you know, Nan slash Nymeria when she's in disguise. And then she invents the name of a ship uh, called Nymeria that is part of one of her made-up backstories for one of her many characters. Assumed identities, we could call them. But Nymeria fandom in the North, that's unusual. I think. It doesn't seem to have a lot of other examples. Sansa never thinks or talks of Nymeria, nor anyone else in the North that we've noted. Uh, maybe not so much in the rest of the South either, honestly, given she doesn't conform to the kind of womanly virtues that the Seven espouse. And of course, the fact that she doesn't behave like a proper Westerosi lady is, in fact, a huge part of why she's a hero to Arya and Arianne and not to Sansa, right? Also, it's hard to imagine Nymeria being popular in, say, the Stormlands or the Reach, places that have historically hated the Dornish. Because remember, it's only relatively recently that these regions have come to live in, well, peace, relative peace. For example, Brienne, 
could be a good example of someone that might look up to Nymeria as an inspiration. She's herself, Brienne, not exactly a proper Westerosi lady, but at no point does Brienne think of or mention Nymeria, and I think that might be because she's from the Stormlands, where they do not like the Dornish so much. Tanzel Tutal, from the Hedge Knight novella, performed a Nymeria tale as one of her puppet shows, and this took place in The Reach. But let's not forget, Tanzel's not from the Reach. She's from Dorne, so that kind of fits. At least one semi-important person in the Iron Islands thinks well of her here during the King's Moot. A feast for crows, the drowned man. Lord Gilbert began to speak. He told of a wondrous land beyond the sunset sea, a land without winter or want, where death had no dominion. Make me your king and I shall lead you there he cried. We will build ten thousand ships as Nymeria once did, and take sail with all our people to the land beyond the sunset. There every man shall be a king, and every wife a queen. Because Lord Gilbert and his kin are unpopular? Eh, perhaps his mention of Nymeria means less than we would like. But I suspect many Ironborn would give at least grudging respect to someone who sailed so far and so wide, seeing so many places. They do respect that. They respect sailing as much as they do fighting prowess, if you do it bravely. But the Roinar themselves weren't actually a sailing people. This was something they were forced into. I mean, they certainly get around on the water really well, but that's river travel. That's a lot different than sea travel. They use boats all over. But again, river boats, seagoing vessels, different kind of thing. But And the Roinar shun the sea, but not from fear. It's just from preference. For many centuries, the Roinar lived in peace, though many a savage people dwelt in the hills and forests around Mother Roin, all knew better than to molest the river folk, and the Roinar themselves showed little interest in expansion. The river was their home, their mother, and their god, and few of them wished to dwell beyond the sound of her eternal song. Simply put, they didn't want to go to other places, land or sea. They really liked where they were. In real-world terms, there's no one perfect parallel for the Roinar. As I said earlier, it's not really European peoples. I think that the best match is, if we're looking, you would start with the ancient river cultures of the world, because that's what the Roinar are in this setting. I think the closest is Egypt. The Nile is a vast, fertile river, one of the biggest in the world, and the Egyptians didn't expand terribly far away from it. They were an old people, powerful, advanced, artistic, dark-skinned, highly influential, and builders of spectacular monuments that still fascinate people thousands of years later. All those things are true of the Roinar as well. And eventually conquered by powers that included Rome. Egypt, of course. <laughs> Not the Roinar. But that adds nicely to the comparison, really, because Rome is so often compared to Valyria. And Valyria conquered the Roinar, so there you go. And if Daenerys eventually takes Dorne, the heir to Valyria taking the kingdom of the heirs of the Roinar. That'll wrap that circle up nicely. And recall that her ancestors only ever succeeded in this via marriage. Danny's, that is. And, of course, it was a Princess Daenerys that was in that marriage, on top of it all. So delving into the lore of the Roinar means taking a long look at Mother Roin herself. She who has been giving life for countless eons. That's where it starts, so we should start back. Mother of Rivers The mightiest river in the world, the Roin's many tributaries stretched across much of western Essos. Along their banks had arisen a civilization and culture as storied and ancient as the old empire of Gis. 
The Roynar had grown rich off the bounty of their river. Mother Roin, they named her. Since we're talking so much about Daenerys, Mother of Dragons, Mother of Rivers fits nicely as a title here, but it's, it's not actually the comparison we had in mind. The real inspiration for the title of this section is the Mother of Mountains, worshipped, of course, by the Dothraki. This isn't just a, hey, look at this nice even naming convention. But it's a point about ancient peoples, both in the real world and the Martin world. And to simplify things a bit, we can say that the most ancient peoples, wherever they were, had some things in common, like worshipping things that give life and things that inspire awe. Early versions of worship a lot of times took a generally look like this. The Mother of Mountains certainly qualifies as awe-inspiring. And look at how much horses are wrapped up in Dothraki spirituality. Of course, it's a big part of that. It's part of their natural environment. Living on the plains, a mountain on the plains is a rare thing, and it really stands out. So there's a lot to, there's a lot of sense to be made from this. It kind of, you can kind of go back and see how the earliest people would have been inspired by these natural features and the elements around them. But really, it's nothing compared to the Rhoyne, which, talk about standing out. This river is utterly gigantic, dwarfing the rivers of Earth. If it were in Westeros, let's say it ended at the southernmost point of Dorne, it would start all the way up in the neck, or thereabouts, right around there. Just, it's huge. And Tyrion gets to travel down a long portion of it. He thinks it is five times wider than the Blackwater during one portion. Wow. <laughs> Mother Roin inspires awe. Again, literally awesome. She gives life. A lot more than any mountain or great grass sea could, and those do give a pretty good amount of life. But she's also been doing it for so much longer. The Dothraki are a young people compared to the Roinar, though <laughs> if the Dothraki were here to comment on that, they would point out that, hey, they're still around, and the Roinar are mostly gone. But there's also similarity here in their worship. Instead of the horse gods for the Dothraki, there's a crab god and a turtle god, for example, for the Roinar. In fact, the ancient Roinar didn't just worship Mother Roin as a deity, they worshipped her as the mother of all the other deities. Not exactly monotheism, but sort of a hierarchy where she was at the top. We see here that, in this quote, which also reveals that the Roinar have a cultural memory older than the Long Night itself, so it goes to show how long they've been around. Lomas Longstrider, in his Wonders Made by Man, recounts meeting descendants of the Roinar in the ruins of the festival city of Croyan, who have tales of a darkness that made the Roin dwindle and disappear, her waters frozen as far south as the joining of the Saloru. According to these tales, the return of the sun came only when a hero convinced Mother Roin's many children, lesser gods such as the Crab King and the Old Man of the River, to put aside their bickering and join together to sing a secret song that brought back the day. So that bickering sounds kind of to me like fighting for the Iron Throne. The hero is the one who turns everyone's attention to the real enemy in the north. The old man of the river is a turtle. And the Crab King, well, he's a crab. That's more straightforward. Even though the Roinar have fallen as a united people, their bloodlines, physical traits, and many traditions and beliefs still exist. Tyrion IV, A Dance with Dragons I shall, the dwarf was thinking, when he spied a rippling ahead not six yards from the boat. He was about to point it out to Lamour when it came to the surface with a wash of water that rocked the shy maid sideways. 
It was another turtle, a horned turtle of enormous size, its dark green shell mottled with brown and overgrown with water moss and crusty black river mollusks. It raised its head and bellowed, a deep-throated, thrumming roar louder than any war horn that Tyrion had ever heard. "'We are blessed!' Isila was crying loudly as tears streamed down her face. "'We are blessed! We are blessed!' From a nature versus... No, not nurture. From a nature versus magical nature point of view, huge turtles aren't necessarily fantastical. Real-world turtles can be up to seven feet long. Prehistoric turtles could have been up to 13 feet or four meters long and even wider than that. So, that's huge. But, in this case, all right, we're getting even larger. The one Tyrion sees, he considers larger than the whole pole boat that they're on. The the Shy Maid isn't large, but it's surely more than 13 feet long. There's way too many people on it for that. So this turtle is indeed huge, and fantastical probably is the right word. Especially when you throw in that louder-than-warhorn bellow that it's got. That's, like, that's pretty cool. And recall that Tyrion is already, prior to this scene, seen countless turtles on the Roin, including ones that were large enough to ride. And Yandri even says that the Roinish princes did that. Rode turtles. There's your sense of awe again, again and again. We just keep getting inundated with amazing things. Izilla cries and calls it a blessing. And a moment later, Yandri cries, it was him, the old man of the river. They're just overcome. I mean, it is a damn huge turtle. What can you say? And George R. R. Martin gave it a damn huge home. They'd surely be impressed with that as well. I mean, imagine Yandri and Yasilla's ancestors just gazing out over this giant body of water and all these giant things that come out of it. What a place for their ancestors to have been driven away from. Yeah, it gets sad, doesn't it? This sighting in particular of the giant turtle, Tyrion thinks of what he's learned about young Griff's identity and how gods often appear to witness the birth of kings. But he's also having this moment. He's saying this line to himself in his head while at a palace whose final owner, before it was destroyed, was Nymeria herself. Hmm. Birth of kings, birth of queens, and princesses indeed. This giant palace, this giant turtle, this giant river. There's nothing like it to compare within Westeros, maybe not even all of Martin's world. The closest thing in Westeros to the Roin is the Trident, but it's really not that close. Despite being so huge and expansive, it only gets a darn instead of a damn. Not that kind of dam. We've got lots of dams on the trident. We hear that the ancient first men worshipped natural things before they adopted the worship of the old gods. So maybe they used to worship the trident as some kind of god or goddess. But I'm not sure they worshipped any river animal gods like the Roinar still do to this day. We certainly don't have any specific mentions of that. The first men worshipped deities like the Lady of the Waves and the Lord of the Skies. Maybe they would have worshipped gigantic somethings if they had that to worship. But... Then again, there were giant things in Westeros that no one seemed to worship. The actual giants, speaking of giant things. And there's dire wolves, and great krakens, and lions, great lions. And, you know, the ironborn think the krakens are cool, but they don't worship them. So, uh, yeah, that doesn't really, uh, that doesn't really happen. You can eat a trout in front of a tully without offending them, but if you even talk about trying to eat one of those large turtles of the Roin, watch out. Wars have been fought over that, seriously. Wars, plural. We'll be getting to that later. 
And maybe it's a bit like the children. Another comparison to children and the first men who got pretty upset when anyone would come to burn their heart trees down. So I think this is kind of similar. The turtles to the heart trees. How about that? But now, like the children, the Roinar are a tiny minority and it's normal to see this just for sale. Another display to gigantic turtle strung up by its legs on iron chains, heavy as a horse. As sad as that is, it's also kind of cool because it shows how George is great at just putting a lot into a seemingly throwaway detail. I mean, this is just another animal hung up in a market in the context that the line is delivered. But in terms of deeper meaning, in terms of people paying attention, like anyone who listens to this show is paying attention. <laughs> That's just how it is. So you know from seeing that turtle hung up, it's not just an animal at a market. It's a sacrilege. It's a horror. It's, like I said, kind of sad, really. Imagine seeing a heart tree freshly cut down and hung up for sale at a market for the whole, you know, or whole and in parts. Is someone saying, hey, have a branch, chop off a couple of branches just for sale, some, you know, heart tree lumber? You're kind of getting the idea what I'm getting at here and how this kind of thing would be uh, offensive to the Roinar. An earlier quote referred to a secret song that brought back the day. Well, the notion that a song of ice and fire, perhaps, ended the long night is a bit off topic, but certainly worth noting. So is the bit about the waters freezing as far south as the Selhoru. That's pretty specific, and if it's accurate, well, it might just be a huge clue. If we draw a straight line west to see where that corresponds in Westeros, we wind up in the vicinity just north of Starfall. So, will the new long night in Westeros be so bad that even the rivers in the Red Mountains of Dorne freeze? Children of the Rhoyne. We were speaking of the children of the forest for a moment there, but the Rhoynar used the term as well. It, of course, fits with that they call themselves children, given that they call the river mother. And in line with that naming convention, the green blood, the people who are descendants of the Rhoynar, they call themselves orphans since they've lost their mother. Though some, like Yandri and Yusilla, who are orphans themselves from the green blood, they heed the call. Yandri and Yusilla felt the urge to go to Mother Rhoyne, even though they were born in Dorne, and they live there now. We'll see later that heeding the call to return to Mother Rhoyne got quite a few other people killed or enslaved, but that was when Valyria still existed. It's still dangerous, but less so. Yandri and Yusilla are happy with their life. As vast as Mother Rhoyne is, there are many forms her children come in, and the term gets thrown around applying to tributary rivers and living things alike. Probably other things, too. As river people, the Roinar did river people-type things. They made use of what the river gave them. But not all rivers are created equal. Not all rivers give the same things. And many people lived in relative peace on the Roin, as things often go when there's resources and space aplenty for all. Mother Roin helped in her own way, keep them peaceful by giving them everything they needed to live. And by making it appealing to stay instead of looking elsewhere to conquer and expand. And since they only expanded along the river and never away from it, they had more time for looking inward, building, and growth. 
Fishers, traders, teachers, scholars, workers in wood and stone and metal, they raised their elegant towns and cities from the headwaters of the Rhoyne down to her mouth, each lovelier than the last. There was Goyendroi in the velvet hills with its groves and waterfalls, Nysar, the city of fountains alive with song, Arnoi on the coin with its halls of green marble, Pale Sarmel of the flowers, Sigurd Sarhoi with its canals and saltwater gardens, and Croyam, greatest of all, the festival city with its great palace of love. In the next section, we'll discuss structures, these palaces and such. Right now, I want to draw your attention to their gardens, art, music, culture. They grew culture. And in those creations, they imbued themes of love and beauty. Tyrion notes that the pole boats on the green blood even now are brightly painted and exquisitely carved, which is very likely what it was like back on the Rhine prior to Nymeria's day, when the waters were safe for travel and trade and leisure. Arianne sees a very excellently painted pole boat, and it makes her think of how only the poorest of the orphans don't, buy, uh, don't decorate theirs, because they can't afford it. And then right after that, Ariohota appears from within this pole boat, and suddenly she's no longer thinking about design or artwork or the orphans of the green blood or any of that. She's just saying, oh crap. Nowadays, Tyrion notes that many have to go with drab boats to keep a low profile. They don't want to tempt pirates. So that's a far cry from when even the poorest people would decorate their boats, because the situation, the violence, the threats, doesn't allow them to let their creativity fly. Now, a recurring fandom question that gets asked, it's been asked since 1996 when the first book came out. People have been um, playing around with this concept, this idea, which is, would you live in Westeros if you could? And if so, what time period? I always say, no, hell no, definitely not. Hard pass. Even if Essos was an option, and even if we get to eliminate all options that have things like human sacrifice or slavery. There's still very little to like. You're still left with mostly heinous options. But a major shining exception seems to be living as one of the Rhoynar during their long golden age. That might be amazing. For what should be obvious reasons, most women would be even quicker with the old hell no hard pass on living in Westeros, that question. But the Rhoynar apparently had gender equality, so this might be appealing to everyone as far as a place to live at some point during the history of Martin's world. They had, in their system of inheritance and property and ruling, women inheritors, They're just on equal footing. Women were warriors, too. Though united by blood and culture, and the river that had given them birth, the ruinous cities were elsewise fiercely independent, each with its own prince, or princess, for amongst these river folk, women were regarded as the equals of men. It is Mother Rhine, not Father Rhine, after all. Putting a feminine figure first, worshipping life-giving properties. These are consistent related elements in their society that also reflect real-world examples of societies that put women highly or equally, things like that. Contrast to another feminine symbol, though, the harpy. She doesn't give life, though. She is portrayed as a slaver. She's got chains and everything. And while women can wear the tokar, none of them are masters. The women do seem to have some power. We do see the graces as head priestesses and all that, and they're all women. But still, it's not equal. And uh, contrast to Volantis, a city that is going to feature prominently in this episode because they're such a big part of the story of the Rhoyne, and they're on the Rhoyne. Volantis hasn't had a female triarch in 300 years. Though given that women can be voted in and have, 
That's still better than most places in Westeros, except for where the Rhoynish influence is strong, Dorne. But don't be fooled, yeah, about Volantis there. Just because they have voting, they're not a real democracy. And that's another topic we're getting to get to. All these cultures had examples of women holding various forms of power, but only in the Rhoynar cities is there what seems to be full equality. That's the biggest takeaway that we can get from that. And the Rhoynar had a reputation for letting other people come to live alongside them. You know, they were open to new neighbors, as long as those new neighbors lived in peace. Nice. Literally, they were nice people, I guess. <laughs> I wonder if this perhaps relates to their own diversity as a people, as it's hard for me to imagine that the people at the mouth of the Rhoyne were a completely identical culture and bloodline to those way up at the top. I mean, remember how long I told you this river is. But clearly these differences, whatever they may have been, were not used as an excuse for conflicts, at least not often enough for the stories to stand out and to have come down to us. And with all these forms of acceptance alongside art, music, love, prosperity, and security, yeah, you can see why I'd nope on Westeros, but yep on this. Just compare them to the other super ancient people of the world we hear of, like the Giscari. Slavery and conquest was their ideal. They worship a feminine figure, but she's a cruel mistress. And, of course, the whole thing about having rights in Giscari society. With regards to ruling, the Rhoynar had princes and princesses, though, not kings and queens. They had what could be called city-states, Independent but connected, but not so quarrelsome as other neighbors might be. Independent doesn't necessarily mean they fought each other. I suppose they might be properly called principalities, but that's just semantics. We aren't 100% sure new princes and princesses always pass their titles down to their eldest heir, but it's pretty likely because that's what the Dornish system does, and the Dornish system is apparently built on the Rhoynar system. So despite their disinterest in expansion and conquest, their warriors were considered fierce, not to be taken lightly. We hear potential foes nearby were generally reluctant to try the Rhoynar, a state of affairs that may have lasted thousands of years. Like, I'm a lover, not a fighter, but I'm also a fighter, so watch yourself. That sort of thing. On a more practical note, as is so common, people are just more motivated when they're defending their own homes. If you go out and fight in the world, people tend to be the most fierce when it's their home at stake. With the women helping out, you got twice as many potential warriors and all that motivation to go with. And add to that, they were apparently the first in the known world to learn ironworking and eventually steel. They made armor that looked like the scales of a fish, which we still see now, even when it seems more like the scales of a snake. Well, it can be both, as we see from this very familiar figure here. Quote, Elsewise, Oberyn was clad in supple leather and flowing silks. Over his burney, he wore his scales of gleaming copper. And rivers themselves look a lot like snakes when seen above or on a map. Maybe Oberyn's fierceness has a Rhoynish twist to it. Imagine an elite squad of Rhoynar spearmen like a few hundred red vipers or something. Maybe red turtles in this case. Red crabs? Hmm. <laughs> that would keep away most would-be invaders, I would think. One exception, one culture not intimidated by any of the above was the Andals, a people very unlike the Rhoynar, very interested in expansion, and later very familiar with how metalworking superiority can play a huge role in war. Before their success attacking the steel-lacking first men, they had some not-so-successful ventures on their home continent. We hear tell of Andal adventurers trying to conquer ruinous cities, seeing that lack of unity as a weakness and an opportunity only to find they would, in fact, unite to help each other against invasion, after all. 
The Roynish warrior with his silver-scaled armor, fish-head helm, tall spear, and turtle-shell shield was esteemed and feared by all those who faced him in battle. We saw the scales on Oberyn, though his were copper, and the spear is familiar there as well. Oberyn used it because he's a guy facing a larger foe and needed to keep his distance until he could, you know, get that poison in there. But that's a one-on-one -on -one fighting tactic. That's not how it works for large armies. Spears work great as a defensive weapon when there's a whole bunch of them all at once, pointing in one direction. Turtle shield wall <laughs> with their spears. Uh, the turtle shell shield is really cool sounding. I wonder what that looked like. Probably like a turtle shell. Probably came in a variety of colors. Given the turtle imagery and his status as a minor deity, I imagine the old man of the river was prayed to on the eve of countless battles. It might matter a lot that turtles are everywhere on the Rhine, you know, symbol of uh, battle here and there. Maybe like ravens on more traditional battlefields. And again, Tyrion sees them all over the place when he's traveling down the Rhine. And that's a bit relevant because George does love turtles in real life. They were the only pets he was allowed to have through a long portion of his childhood because he lived in a housing project and you're not allowed to have cats or dogs or animals like that. He actually had names for these turtles. He would give them names that were like knight names or king names, and he would imagine them having mock battles. I picture these chapters were maybe a little extra fun for him to write because of the turtle memories. And maybe you have like different color designs and stuff for each Roynish city-state. You know, pink for Sarhoi, green for Croyane, something like that. You know, like, like different houses in Westeros have their colors and sigils. Serdantos, man, he loves those banners, the colors, right? He's, he got all hyped about that. But Westeros' banners are probably nothing like what the Roynar had. The Red Keep is cool and all, but the Roynar had much bigger places with much more exotic colors for building with. I mean, pink marble, like a whole building, a whole palace made of pink marble? That's hard to imagine. And that is what the Andals faced when they came to conquer and failed. They may have thought all the color and design was a sign of weakness. Warriors don't do that sort of thing. But it was certainly not a sign of weakness. The Maesters believe the Andals learned ironworking from the Roinar, which that seems rather ungrateful if you ask me, but conquerors are rarely polite. If the Andals attacked, before they had learned the secret of ironworking, well, no wonder it went so badly for them. And it reminds us of the Andals having steel versus the first men who did not. And metalworking is probably just one example of the things the Roinar were ahead of the curve on. It's just one of the few we have explicit examples of. Someone eventually even farther ahead of the curve on metalworking, it's fair to say, would be Valyria and their fancy spanchy Valyrian steel. But that seems to involve magic. Probably blood magic, slavery and human sacrifice coming up again. Something not exactly available to the Roinar as an option as far as their culture goes. It didn't seem to be cool or permitted or practiced at all. Though it was Valyria and her subjects that finally ended the long stretch of this Roinar peace and prosperity era. Eventually overpowering even their wartime unity. Well, the remains of the once great cities of the Roinar still exist. While the same cannot be said for the Freehold. They're blowed up. But both Valyrian steel and countless Roinar technologies are gone, but still there are reminders, echoes of the past, and some of it is dangerous even now. Legacy of the Ancients Since Valyria basically, you know, exploded, there's just not much left to see. You know, we've, there's the smoking ruins, but those aren't really buildings, those are volcanoes. We get ideas, though. Dragonstone is a good example. 
And then on the Rhine, we have the Volantis, which was built by Valyria, and it's got its famous black walls. And it's even more famous, the Long Bridge, which is another one of the wonders of the world, according to Lomas Longstrider. It spans one of the Rhine's deltas. It's huge. And the gateway to it, the passageway into it, is decorated kind of like Dragonstone. you got some of the same, like, beasts and such. Fun fact there for you. So there are some examples out there, but I'm not sure that even those are going to really tell you what Valyria looked like. Because, honestly, Volantis and Dragonstone, I imagine that the Valyrians of the Freehold itself, the, like, big hoity-toity types, the most wealthy and fancy types, would have probably considered Volantis, like, rural. They probably would have looked down on it as just something rustic and just, oh, how cute, those country folk. Uh, so... I don't know. Lomas didn't see any of that, so we don't know for sure just how amazing and epic it was. Maybe it wasn't quite as amazing as I think it is, but I think it was pretty amazing. Lomas would have certainly wrote a lot about it if he could have, but we don't get that. On the other hand, the Children of the Forest, they left little sign of their existence in the realms of men. They didn't do a lot of building. The creepy stuff in the cave of the Three-Eyed Crow aside... The faces of the heart trees are basically all there is to remind the ancient Westerosi of the children. And the few children left keep out of sight. So, yeah. But the children of the Rhine still exist in the world, and they're not hidden. Though they are in vastly reduced numbers. And ruins from the time when they were plentiful are still there to keep some piece of the past alive. A sunken temple loomed up out of the grayness as Yandri and Duck leaned upon their poles and paced slowly from prow to stern, pushing. They passed a marble stair that spiralled up from the mud and ended jaggedly in air. Beyond, half-seen, were other shapes. Shattered spires, headless statues, trees with roots bigger than their boat. This was the most beautiful city on the river, and the richest, said Yandri. Croyan, the festival city. Okay, yeah, the past... It's sad, but still, a festival city. Man, that's a really cool idea. I really wonder about what that was like. This jagged marble staircase we see in that quote, ending in empty air. That's a real poignant image, to be sure. At the very least, implying how much larger the place had once been and the the most beautiful and richest. Imagine that. But also note what isn't there. Fortifications, walls, any sign of defense. Those things weren't destroyed so much as... Never present in the first place. You don't build in marble because it's good for warding off enemies. In fact, it's pretty terrible at that. And the Roinar built huge temples and palaces and other large buildings in the same manner, using marble and other really cool and beautiful-looking materials of dubious practicality. Lomas Longstrider would have had much to write about had he not been born so long after it was, well, like, like it is now. Separate from what... The city planning and building says about war, the marble tells us another interesting story. One consistent with what we've seen so far. All this marble had to come from somewhere, and the vastness of the ruin would offer quite a few nearby sources as options. This big trade network, right? The the network allowed ideas and raw materials alike to be shared along the area of the ruin. I imagine architectural secrets spread faster, building techniques spread faster, because... Everything moves along quickly on a river. It's just faster than land travel, and people use it so much. And if things aren't shared, then they're at least sold in the area. They're at least there. They're at least available. And Tyrion 
passes by a lot of it and gives us an idea. All Tyrion could see was something massive rising from the river, humped and ominous. He took it for a hill looming above a wooded island, or some colossal rock overgrown with moss and ferns and hidden by the fog. As the shy maid drew nearer, though, the shape of it came clearer. A wooden keep could be seen beside the water, rotted and overgrown. Slender spires took form above it, some of them snapped off like broken spears. Roofless towers appeared and disappeared, thrusting blindly upward. Halls and galleries drifted past. Graceful buttresses, delicate arches, fluted columns, terraces and bowers. All ruined, all desolate, all fallen. The grey moss grew thickly here, covering the fallen stones and great mounds and bearding all the towers. Black vines crept in and out of windows, through doors and over archways, up the sides of the high stone walls. The fog concealed three quarters of the palace, but what they glimpsed was more than enough for Tyrion to know that this island fastness had been ten times the size of the Red Keep once, and a hundred times more beautiful. He knew where he was. The Palace of Love, he said softly. That was the Roynar name, said Holden Halfmaster, but for a thousand years this has been the Palace of Sorrow. The ruin was sad enough, but knowing what it had been made it even sadder. There was laughter here once, Tyrion thought. There were gardens bright with flowers and fountains sparkling gold in the sun. These steps once rang to the sound of lovers' footsteps, and beneath that broken dome marriages beyond count were sealed with a kiss. Now imagine someone saying to Tyrion, tap on the shoulder, coming up and saying, actually, it's only been the Palace of Sorrow for 700 years, not a thousand. You think he'd feel less sad? You think that would matter? Of course not. He was thinking a bit, or maybe a lot, about Taisha here and his family and all these other things he's lost. The math on how long ago this beautiful place was destroyed is irrelevant. It was a long time ago. The couple, couple of years, couple of centuries, give or take, does not change anything. Any way you look at it, the relevant parts are the love and laughter are gone for the Palace of Sorrow and all the great works of Roynar Beauty and for Tyrion and Tysha. The Mother Flows On the Rhoynar have fallen, but Mother Rhoyn is still there, and perhaps in the coming eons her children will flourish as they once did. She's patient and inexorable. And it's certainly not as if her banks are empty now. It's simply that there's so much more potential for life along her vast and varied shorelines as there is now. Of course, part of that is due to things like threats nearby, like the Dothraki, the eastern side of the Rhoyn. Yeah, in the northern area, it's a bit threatening. That's a very legitimate thing to worry about. So, not a lot of people live in that area. On the western side, the western bank, that is, where the Dothraki won't go because they're not so big on crossing bodies of water. Well, we're told by Yandri, quote, There is no law above the sorrows, not for a thousand years. No law, sure, but there are pirates. Well, that's often where pirates go, to places where there is no laws. And this includes the infamous Shrouded Lord, and arguably worse things like the Stone Men. Not much in the way of safe havens like towns. 
This area of the Upper Rhine used to belong to Volantis, and they kept it reasonably well in hand, at least kept away pirates. Uh, but Volantis lost all that during the Century of Blood. So, currently, it is not civilized. Once you get past those super fogs, it's kind of like night and day in terms of civilization. Where what we just saw is night, and where we're headed with this quote is day. Another hour should see us clear of the sorrows, said Holden Halfmaster. From there on, this should be a pleasure cruise. There's a village around every bend along the lower Rhine. Orchards and vineyards and fields of grain ripening in the sun. Fisher folk on the water. Hot baths and sweet wines. Soloris, Valiasar, and Volontheris are walled towns, so large they would be cities in the Seven Kingdoms. And recall, there are only five true cities in Westeros. So in this area alone, there are probably like three White Harbors or three Lannisports or something like that. And there's so much more than that. That's just one section. There's still Volantis, one of the largest cities in the known world, for example. Then consider all the ruined cities we just pole-boated past with Tyrion and the crew of the Shy Maid. And imagine them full as they once had been. So the people living on the Rhoyne, and just the Rhoyne, mind you, not even the surrounding area, which can support a lot of life, too. Just that, during the height of the Rhoyne, our city-states. I think we're talking vastly larger numbers than the whole of Westeros. Probably. Speaking of Volantis, they claim dominion of everything below the Sorrows. We hear it is their galleys in control. It's too much of a tangent, you know, to discuss the possible uprising in Volantis fully, but we're going to touch on it briefly a couple different spots here in this episode. It could get very interesting if Volantis is thrown into chaos and their control over this area is lost because it's such an important, valuable place, that port area. Meanwhile, up in the north, we saw what was going on in the Sorrows, but the Rhoyne is so huge, we didn't actually deal with the parts farther north of the Sorrows. The map shows us the area, and the World of Ice and Fire gives us the details. The headwaters of the Rhoyne are controlled by Norvos, which is nestled right in there, so it makes sense they would have control of the surrounding area. And Norvos is a really rigid society, so I imagine they keep a tight lock on trade and piracy. No, I'm, I'm just guessing. But this is a place that rings bells to indicate when it's okay to have sex and eat. So <laughs> I don't know that I'm stretching things too much here. Seems like uh, they would have strict attitudes about that. It doesn't seem like this kind of attitude would have been prominent when the Roinar were running the area, though. I don't think they would have been so strict. They seem more relaxed and peaceful and happy, easygoing. Yeah, who knows? North of Arnoy, we have the area controlled by Kohor. We know they deal quite a lot in timber and furs and other goods from the great forest of Kohor. Thus, it stands to reason having the ability to defend their nearby waters being important for making sure trade is going smoothly. But also, this is a city known for cruelty and possibly human sacrifice and blood magic. Not unlike what we said about Norvos, it's probably not what this area was like culturally when the Roinar were around. But it would be interesting to know if some vestiges of Rhoynar civilization influence these places now. It is this area between Arnoy and the Sorrows that we talked about as considered lawless, but lawless isn't always so bad when the alternative is slavery, say, practiced in Volantis, Narvos, and Kohor alike, and these are among the so-called free cities. <laughs> yeah. 
Though many of the inhabitants are miserable or dangerous or cruel, many are not, and no matter the quality of the peoples, there is a lot of life along the Rhoyne, as we should expect. There's no reason to think such a fertile river would cease to be such. I mean, this isn't uh, Ashai by the Shadow, where the whole river is turned to whatever it's turned into out there. So I guess there's some reason to think this could happen, but it didn't. I suppose we could say the people there now are as much or more children of Valyria than they are children of Mother Rhoyne. They don't see her in the same light. They see her as a right, not a privilege. The attitude of allowing others to share Mother Royne's bounty paid off for uncounted years, but eventually it was taken advantage of. At first, Valyria went for easier pickings, conquering the Giscari, then finally the Andals, while simply moving in alongside the Rhoynar. They were fighting these other people while just living amongst the Rhoynar, grabbing the empty space, before they got to the phase of fighting over it all. The Freehold was strong in sorcery, as we all well know, and I wonder how that came into play when they were building colonies. Was it relevant at all? Eh, maybe not, but it might have helped growth. It might have had something to do with farming or establishing cities and towns and places the Rhoynar hadn't, maybe, you know, affecting the terrain. Um, I don't know. There's, there's different possibilities here. We're talking about large-scale magic. Who knows? And they had eons to do this, meaning filling in these gaps where the Rhoynar weren't. Why didn't the Rhoynar live in some of these places that the Valyrians took? I mean, they had thousands of years to move into those spots, and they never did. So i that's part of why I'm guessing maybe magic has something to do with that. Maybe Valyria, the Valyrians had magic that allowed them to settle in areas that the Rhoynar couldn't, you know, turning swamp into something solid. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, but maybe we're talking, maybe while we're on the subject of magic here, um, Melisandre talks about hinges of the world. A concept that seems to indicate magic works better in some places than others. Maybe certain parts of the Rhoyne were more potent than others, and that's why the Rhoynar picked those specific bends or turns or just who knows how they determined it. But that would explain why they lived in some areas on the Rhoyne and not others. They definitely have tales of water-based sorcery. You know, kind of like the fire and blood tales of sorcery from Valyria. And that, my fandom family, is our next topic. Coming up after the mid-roll break, we're going to get into the water magic. A fierce shout-out to our blood riders, Vorsaki, wielder of a Valyrian steel arak with a dragon bone hilt, and Kohal Koei, called Sunpiercer, wielder of a dragon bone bow. Kohal Koei has kneecapped a client who dodged calls that were keeping him out of jail. Honestly, that's rather merciful, if you ask me. Also, shout out to Sir Terence, Knight of the Cedars. And the Mangum Talks podcast. Check them out at mangumtalks.com. That's spelled mangumtalks.com. And to our sellsword captains, Peter Blaze of the Emerald Isle, captain of the Werewood Wanderers, to Long Lives, Quick Deaths, Cold Beer, and Warm Women, Dagron, Marshal of the Axe, captain of the Red Tide, Resistance is Futile, Kyron Callsbane, Captain of the Stone Shields, the Torrent Breaks Upon the Stone. Hema Helminth, Captain of the Whispering Children, Dead Men Tell No Secrets. Introducing Shepard, the Shepard of Essos. All men are sheep before Shepard of Essos. He is heir to Hema Helminth of the Whispering Children. One day he shall be captain. Lady Lajara Dajo, the Iron Lily, Master Archer, Castellan of the Summer Island Keep, Arboreal Point, Captain of the All-Female Wailing Widows, Women and Children First. 
Cody the Crimson, Bastard of Bracken, Captain of the Red Waste Exiles and Recruiter of the Free Folk. Cameron, the Hammer of Hornwood, Captain of the English Lions, with the motto, Honor is the Reward of Virtue. Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Blackrune is Captain of the Shadow Wolves. Our steel is cold, our vengeance colder. And last but not least, Black Alex Sand, the Bastard of Spears, leader of the Bermuda Vanguard. If you're like me and you listen to podcasts and audiobooks with headphones and are not so happy with your current pair or if they're wearing out, try the ones I use. Our sponsor, Studio Sweden. I edited this episode using them and I listen to all my podcasts and audiobooks using them. I use them because they recharge really fast, they hold a charge really long, and they stay on my head really well without me worrying about them falling off when I'm walking around doing chores, running around upstairs, downstairs, etc. Go to studiosweden.com. And use the checkout code WESTEROS to get 15% off your next order. That's our mid-roll. Let's get back to Mother Roin. Aquamancy. Art and music flourished in the cities of the Roin, and it is said their people had their own magic, a water magic very different from the sorceries of Valyria, which were woven of blood and fire. Later in the episode, we'll be discussing war, and in the accounts we have of those wars, the term water wizard is used a couple of times and implied quite a few other times. I think it's a safe assumption that this is awesome. (laughs) Instead of fire, volcanoes, lava, sulfur, and such, we have water walls, water spouts, floods, harrowing fogs, and swamps and such. So let's delve into that and see what there is to see here. It was said the Mother Roin herself whispered to her children of every threat, and the Roinish princes wielded strange, uncanny powers, that Roinish women fought as fiercely as Roinish men, and that their cities were protected by watery walls that would rise to drown any foe. As it is with anything magical, the stories are usually inflated. The maesters don't exactly know how to record magic perfectly, right? They're just, is this really what happened? You know, the maesters a lot of times are against magic, so you know it would be it's a difficult it's a challenge for them to record these things. But we can be nonetheless pretty sure that these stories are real. Inflated stories doesn't mean made up stories, right? The part about whispering to her children, that bit of the quote about letting them know of threats, that sounds like reading the future in flames or something, you know, like uh, some kind of uh, foretelling. But it could be something more mundane, like. Word of mouth travels faster when you have ships to send, you know, messenger boats going back and forth. That's a lot faster than, you know, on foot or by horse. Uh, Maybe not faster than ravens, though, but still, fast enough. And then we hear these stories of water levels rising and falling at very specific times. Very uh, opportune times for the Roinar. Now... I tend to think a lot of these stories are more mundane in nature, but only some of them. Because after all, these are people who have lived along the river for eons. They understand flooding and flooding cycles and dams and things of that. I think they would have a very sophisticated understanding of these concepts and they would have some technology like dams and sluice gates and all sorts of stuff. Like imagine River Run and how they can put up dams and isolate the castle on the river like a giant moat. Stuff like that, but even more fancy. Now, stuff that's now long destroyed though, so we wouldn't be able to know exactly what it is. But also, the magic, right? These things can overlap. We hear now 
of how when the Roinar first settled in Dorne that, quote, it is said that the Roinus water witches knew secret spells that made dry streams flow again and deserts bloom. But this I'm a little skeptical about. This sounds like just advanced irrigation techniques, like new technology that the locals weren't familiar with. Kind of like how Euron was called magical by some fellow Ironborn for simply sailing more efficiently, all right? He went out of sight of land, which the Ironborn were like, whoa, what's he doing? This is sorceress. But really, that's just good sailing. That's just a more advanced technique. Nothing magic about it. And in this case also, if the water witches were making the deserts bloom and making dry streams flow again, where is that now? Dorne doesn't seem to have evidence of long-term expansion of their water, right? It's still mostly desert down there. If they could have done that back then, either the effect is worn off or they lost the ability to do it or it was all exaggerated in the first place. Sometimes within the shadow of mystery lies the possibility for that mundane explanation here, but other times, magic is the only possible explanation. Mire and Flood uh, Yeah, I was really proud of myself for this pun. Sorry. <laughs> On the side of examples that we can't rationalize away, here we go, we have one example here from Prince Garen the Great. Quote, so long as the army remained beside Mother Roin, the prince declared, they need not fear the dragons of Valyria. Their own water wizards would protect them against the fires of the Freehold. It's entirely possible this is not an actual quote, but just maesterly embellishment. But if it is, the idea that something mundane, like just water, the river, could stop dragon flame, that's a bit over the top. So I think he's referring to real magic, right? Water alone going to stop dragon fire? Eh, I don't think so. So earlier we mentioned the lack of fortifications on the ruined Roinar cities. Well, this might explain the lack of fortifications. Who needs real stone walls when you have so-called watery walls that rise when you need them? Hmm? Maybe they weren't so lax on defense after all. They just had other options that uh, maybe we didn't give them credit for at first. Similarly, we have these tales of flooding. And like I said, a lot of them seem like they could be mundane, but some of them are just undeniably magical, assuming what we're told is accurate. The Roinar didn't enslave people, as far as we know. And this is an interesting side topic, because what did the Roinar do with captured prisoners? Is it possible they sacrificed enemies to Mother Roin, like drowning, like the Ironborn do? Eh. We have nothing to suggest this, so I'll guess no. But a recurring theme we're presented with in Martin's world is that great magic has great cost. Flooding whole cities doesn't sound like lesser magic, so maybe they're just that powerful, but maybe they had to offer something. Maybe it did take blood or sacrifice of some kind to generate this kind of magic. I mean, think about the children of the forest and their nature magic. They have, you know, similar related kind of magic. The flooding of the neck is a perfect example. That is attributed to them, and that's water, right? Huge amounts of water, and there's some tales that maybe there was some blood magic involved in making that happen. This could be another one of those cases of magical overlap. Still, there's no evidence whatsoever that the Roinar sacrificed people to, to create magic. Just throwing it out there, though, because it parallels so well with some of these other things that are awfully similar. As we saw in the last section... All those old Roinar cities are mostly below water level now. And that's why pole boats are such a great choice in these parts. And that reminds us of Bravos. They have 
all the same kind of situation there. There's water all over their city, and pole boats are perfect there. And hey, Bravos is pretty foggy too. But Bravos is partly underwater because it's been sinking very gradually. Volantis has been sinking too. Well, maybe that's why the Royal cities are flooded now. Just because it's been so long and they've gradually sunk underwater? I mean, we can understand why they're ruined. That's thanks to Valyria. But the Valyrians used fire. They didn't flood them, as far as we know. Maybe the flooding was caused by destroyed system of dams or unleashed. You know, something simple like that. But, again, in several cases, it's the conquerors themselves that are get flooded. We're not going to guess that Valyria took a city, then blew the dams up and flooded themselves. Right? That doesn't make any sense. They're not going to flood their own people. They're not, they may not know what they're doing with these dams, but they're not that dumb. So that's probably not it. Here's an idea. Perhaps like the Valyrian sorcerers holding back the fire and force of the 14 flames with sorcery. Maybe Roynish water wizards prevented Mother Roin from flooding certain spots, from flooding her cities. And during these wars, maybe so many of these magic users were killed off that Mother Roin was started to run rampant again. You know, it wasn't quite the effect of the volcanoes all blowing up at once, but the concept is similar. I think you can you can see that. I think it's pretty close. And of course, the religious significance here is huge. To many, it would look like Mother Roin was rejecting the newcomers, flooding them. They're not her children, after all. They came from elsewhere. So you could see why believers would interpret these natural events as engineered by their goddess. But whatever the truth of the Roinar capabilities, they're, like I said, with the Dornish deserts, there's not a lot of hint of it existing now. We don't see any of it in A Song of Ice and Fire, but magic is on the upswing in the series, isn't it? So maybe we will see it because, well, if we did, this would be the time. Soon or near the end or in the, whatever, the last two books, whatever we're going to get. And I say little sign of it, literally, meaning there is some, and it's not all gone, and it might turn out to be a big part of the story. So let's talk about that. The Grey Death. Tyrion V, A Dance with Dragons. Damp is said to be the culprit, he said. Foul humors in the air, not curses. The conquerors did not believe either, Hugh or Hill, said Isilla. The men of Volantis and Valyria hung Garen in a golden cage and made mock as he called upon his mother to destroy them. But in the night the waters rose and drowned them, and from that day to this they have not rested. They are down there still beneath the water, they who were once the lords of fire. Their cold breath rises from the murk to make these fogs, and their flesh has turned as stony as their hearts. The stump of Tyrion's nose was itching fiercely. He gave it a scratch. The old woman may be right. This place is no good. Grayscale. Well, it's definitely a fantasy disease, so my... Calling it magical holds up, right? Especially with Tyrion's sense on the matter. Slowly turning into a stone person that attacks people. Yeah, that's that's fantasy. And it does remind us a bit of what's going on in the north. Not the north of the Rhoyne, which I've been referring to, but at the north of Westeros, the normal north that we talk about. Don't forget that Val, a normally kind of flippant person, adamantly declares that Shireen is a dead girl. Val is rarely serious. But this is one of those times... John says Shireen was cured of it. She only has scarring. Val says it's only sleeping. She says, quote, the child is not clean. The wildlings call it the Grey Death. That's a nastier name. 
Imagine it awakening in poor Shireen and her becoming a little girl stone man. Ooh, stone girl. <laughs> if Shireen is going to be burned to bring back John, hey, she's the stone. He's the dragon, awakened dragons from stone. That could work. If it's decided Shireen has to die because of her infection, well, if he's just infecting people, that would be a reason to have to regrettably you know, put her down. Sounds harsh, but Melisandre could suggest this would give her death more meaning. Like, we have to put her to death. She's infecting people, but we could benefit from it at the same point, you know? This strikes me as more plausible than burning her for, you know, really bad weather. <laughs> but we're talking about a different kind of crap weather here in on the Rhoyne. We have creepy fogs that are kind of magical and the water moving in certain ways that doesn't really make sense exactly. So we've got the same kind of natural magic going on. Bad snowstorms, bad fogs, different part of the world. On that note, we have magical evidence beyond grayscale, though. She mentions the drowning of many men from Volantis and Valyria and the fog. Yeah, here we go. Let's talk about this fog. It's unnatural, too. The lanterns had been lit fore and aft, but the fog was so thick that all the dwarf could see from amidships was a light floating out ahead of him and another following behind. His own task was to tend the brazier and make certain that the fire did not go out. I will remind you again that Tyrion is a fairly grounded guy, but he's willing to believe quite a lot in this case because his own senses and thoughts are pointing to a conclusion that this is magic, this is real, and this is frightening. And it's about to get worse. This is no common fog, Hugor Hill, Isila insisted. It stinks of sorcery, as you would know if you had a nose to smell it. Many a voyager has been lost here. Pole boats and pirates and great river galleys, too. They wander forlorn through the mists, searching for a sun they cannot find until madness or hunger claim their lives. There are restless spirits in the air here, and tormented souls below the water. There's one now, said Tyrion. Off to starboard, a hand large enough to crush the boat was reaching up from the murky depths. Only the tops of two fingers broke the river's surface, but as the shy maid eased on past... He could see the rest of the hand rippling below the water, and a pale face looking up. Though his tone was light, he was uneasy. This was a bad place, rank with despair and death. Isilla is not wrong. This fog is not natural. Something foul grew in the waters here, and festered in the air. Small wonder the stone men go mad. Is that really a stone Valyrian or Valentine person down there that he's seeing like a their final pose as they died? That could be a statue. That could be a dead stone man. You know, I could see it go either way. And the fact that we don't know that mystery makes it even cooler and creepier. It's great writing, great decision making by George on how to lay this out. But even that isn't as overtly magical as this next bit. It's one of the most overtly magical things we see in the whole series. Something that even a skeptic can't explain away. Something that the Halfmaster, who is a bit of a skeptic, calls inconceivable. Like the Princess Bride. <laughs> On the larboard side of the boat, a huge stone hand was visible just below the water. Two fingers broke the surface. How many of those are there? Tyrion wondered. 
A trickle of moisture ran down his spine and made him shudder. The sorrows drifted by them. Peering through the mists, he glimpsed a broken spire, a headless hero, an ancient tree torn from the ground and upended, its huge roots twisting through the roof and windows of a broken dome. Why does all of this seem so familiar? Straight on, a tilted stairway of pale marble rose up out of the dark water in a graceful spiral, ending abruptly ten feet above their heads. No, Tyrion thought, that is not possible. This is the scene where the home of the Stone Men, the Bridge of Dream, a spot they've already passed, comes again. The passage is really well written and hits us with quite the surprise. This kind of overt magic is not what we're accustomed to. It really kind of comes out of nowhere. And it tells us there is magic on the Rhoyne and there can be little doubt of it. If you hadn't gotten it by that point in those chapters, this was like George just making sure that we'd get it here. And as I said earlier in this section, the magical elements are picking up as we go deeper into the epic of A Song of Ice and Fire and we're learning more about Dorne and we'll probably spend more time there in the Winds of Winter than we have before. So we might see some of this or something else. Like it, after all. Grayscale came around, as they say, because of Garen's curse. Which may not be true, but regardless, they say it, and it matters that they say this. It came after Garen had lost this final war against Valyria. His moment, his curse, came in those waiting moments of the war, when he was forced to watch his people die and be enslaved. This is the same war that featured much of the magic we've just discussed, along with the magic of the Freehold and their dragons. This is that same war that left the cities of the Rhoyne that Tyrion just saw in the state they are now, and it's the same war that led to Nymeria's Great Odyssey. And of course, the winners of this great series of wars was Valyria, who are now gone, and Volantis, who are still there and very powerful. But in the descriptions we get of Volantis, it's clear that this power of theirs is waning. We mention the strong possibility of a slave revolt, and it's worse than that because said slave revolt, if it happens, is not unlikely to be backed by the Temple of R'hllor, obviously not a force to be taken lightly. And the worshippers of R'hllor have the, their largest temple in Volantis, so they have a huge presence there. Tyrion and Quentin both go there in person to Volantis and notice the rot, the decay, the corruption, the great divide in rights between rich and poor, even setting aside slavery, that divide exists. And here's a quote that tells us about it. Tyrion Seven, A Dance with Dragons Mighty Volantis, grandest and most populous of the nine free cities. Ancient wars had depopulated much of the city, however, and large areas of Volantis had begun to sink back into the mud on which it stood. Beautiful Volantis, city of flowers and fountains. But half the fountains were dry, half the pools cracked and stagnant. Flowering vines sent up creepers from every crack in wall or pavement, and young trees had taken root in the walls of abandoned shops and roofless temples. Sinking into the mud. That's some straightforward symbolism for the decline I mentioned, and the rest of the description leaves no doubt as to that. The quote mentions ancient wars also. That would mostly be those wars during the Century of Blood, but those as far back as the conflicts with the Rhoynar might have an impact as well. Fight fire with water. So we've already talked about Garen's curse. 
and the ruins of the Roinar cities, and a lot of what it's like now. But we haven't talked about the wars that triggered the curse and caused the ruination. So let's rewind a bit. Oh, that was bad, right? After conquering the Giscari, the Valyrians turned west, as Slaver's Bay is pretty far to the east, and for a while beyond it is mostly desert. Not as much worth conquering over there. They started settling alongside the Roinar, like we said earlier. Just settling, not fighting, because, well, the Roinar were welcoming. They allowed this to happen, so no need to fight for something that's being given to you. Also, there were easier pickings to the north, the Andals that we mentioned earlier. So instead of attacking the Roinar cities, they just lived there, founding their own cities in relative peace nearby, while sending armies north to conquer and enslave the Andals. In the opening quote of the episode, we hear that there's gold in that area where the Andals used to live, which we know the Valyrians lust for, like they do in their mines. Ironically, this led to the Andals fleeing to Westeros, where they would eventually find the Roinar showing up looking for refuge, fleeing from the same threat many centuries later. Living alongside the Roinar eventually caused issues, as we know, but these issues started slowly and gradually. At first, there were small conflicts, usually resolved quickly, but over time, the conflicts grew bloodier and involved progressively larger numbers of soldiers, more people involved, until it was eventually like a full-scale affair, the Roinar versus the Freehold. The earliest violence began about 250 years before Nymeria led the survivors away in their 10,000 ships. So yeah, 250 years before the worst of the violence occurred. Like I said, it took a while to get going, and this was indeed a slow burn. But it also means that under Nymeria and Garen the Great and all their contemporaries, they had been living under and directly facing the threat of Valyrian expansion for generations. They grew up in this situation. It wasn't something that happened during their lifetimes. They were born into it. The peaceful, idyllic history we glimpsed through Tyrion's journey down Mother Roin was already a thing of the past. Prior to Nymeria's day, they were already in this sort of state of, I don't know, decline may not be the right word, but... It wasn't as prosperous. It wasn't as, say, safe or peaceful. There's probably a, a shadow hanging on the horizon. Before the conflict with Valyria, it seems they never faced a threat anywhere near as remotely dangerous or greedy or cruel as the Freehold. Whatever had come before, they had managed to defeat. But even though the Freehold eventually took them down, it wasn't directly them who got it started. Not if we're being precise. It was Volantis. Volantis drew Valyria into it, but originally it was simply those Valyrians who had settled along the Rhoyne. They were the trigger. Tigers and Elephants The two political parties of Volantis to this day are the Tigers and Elephants, and they can tell us a lot about how these clashes began. The Tigers are the old blood of Valyria. They tend to look down on those who aren't and don't marry outsiders to not, you know, water down the bloodlines. And as a political body, they're what we call, at least here in the USA, Warhawks. A different animal, similar point. They both favor military intervention. In the Tigers' case, it's particularly cynical, as it's largely a means to expand and enrich their city, or more likely themselves. The elephants are also enriching the city, or more likely, themselves. But they push this through trade and mercantilism, which, make no mistake, can be very ugly, brutal, and cruel. And they trade in human beings. But they don't trade in war. Well, they don't push for war. I'm sure they're fine to profit off of it. But they also don't care nearly as much about old blood. So, they're bad, but they're not as bad as the tigers. These two parties took over after the doom. 
And it seems likely they existed prior to that, though, just with less power. Valyria is unlikely to have been involved in the day-to-day affairs of Volantis. Remember before I talked about how Volantis would have been important, but, you know, still kind of rustic and rural. So they're not going to get too involved in local politics. Like many empires, which, you know, they weren't really an empire, but they were close enough to an empire. They would expect taxes and troops and allegiance. And as long as they got that, they're not really going to care about local politics. Tigers and elephants, who cares? They got sorcerers and dragon lords and volcanoes to worry about. The point is the tigers and the elephants were probably a major factor in Valentine politics before they became the major factor in Valentine politics. So the tigers led Volantis to near ruin as they overreached during the Century of Blood. And the Valentines learned a lesson about conquest and war. I strongly believe Volantis had their collective heads in the past at this time. Yet it was selective memory because they somehow forgot the historical lesson of dragons. Which was, they had success when Valyria was there to back up them in these wars. Because a lot of times it's said that when things went badly for them, they called in, you know, the big boys back at the freehold and uh, that got them out of the fire. Well, it got them into the fire. But that was a good thing. Anyway, the reason Volantis comes out on top in the long term after all this is for a couple of reasons. It's it, the disunity of the Roinar cities at first was a big part. And the fact that they were willing to be more cruel and dastardly. But once the Roinar unite, they started winning. Until the dragons got involved. Until lots of dragons got involved. So I think the Tiger faction, back in ancient days when these conflicts were triggered, I think the elephants were the ones who were like, yeah, let's live alongside them and trade with them. Let's just do that. That's great. That makes us money. We were, we're all benefit from that. The tigers, though, no, nah, that, that wasn't cool with them. They want to conquer. That's just how they are. They pushed, they provoked, they escalated, you name it. They wanted to fight, they thought they could win, and they were right. This may be part of why the tiger faction rose to prominence in the early days following the Doom. After the Doom, things didn't go well for Volantis, but it took uh, decades for things to go badly. At first, it went well. In other words, war had worked out well for them in the past, so why not keep up that tradition? The Tigers were doing well, leading them to victories. Why not let the Tigers lead them to more victories? Well, because they didn't have dragons backing them anymore, that's why. You know who fought against Volantis when they tried to take over Valeria's possessions during the Century of Blood? Aegon the Conqueror. <laughs> and he's one of them, kind of, by their standards. They prized the old blood and... His blood is better than theirs, you know, again, by their standards. This is blood of the dragon versus just, you know, blood behind the black walls, whatever they call that. And the elephants have ruled Volantis since the tiger's great failure. They're like, well, we're not going to let them screw us over like that again. Because in politics, failure is partisan. <laughs> the elephants are the winners. They have been doing well. They've been bringing great profits to the city. Why would anyone want to mess with that? Well... Well, let me tell you, things might be changing. It may be that the Tigers are in power again. We do not yet know the result of the recent Volantine elections, which we saw taking place in A Dance with Dragons. But the city is getting ready for war. We hear even that the elephants have stripes, which is a, obviously a way of saying that the elephants are acting like tigers, which means they're acting warlike. And their target, of course, is Daenerys Targaryen. Another parallel to Nymeria here. And like Aegon, the Conqueror, she has better blood than these Volantines who are all hoity-toity about, you know, ancient-blooded. 
also like the Century of Blood, like Aegon, Volantis is going to have to deal with a Targaryen on a huge black dragon. Will they ever learn? And even though she's directly related to Aegon I, Danny again, is much more like Nymeria here as she is like Aegon. Despite being of that same quote-unquote better bloodline than the Black Walls of Volantis families, Danny is their enemy because she's smashing the slave trade. And eventually she'll probably smash them if they don't get themselves smashed some other way before she gets a chance to do it. What a change, right? What a reversal that is. And yet Volantis still has their collective heads in their ass. I mean, past. Not only did they try to conquer vast swathes of Essos without dragons and fail, not only did they face a dragon and fail, they're set to run that all back again while also facing a possible slave revolt thanks to the uh, red priests I mentioned earlier. And don't forget that these red priests are openly calling Daenerys Azor Ahai. Good luck ordering zealots to stand by while you attack their literal savior. <laughs> the city and the navy of Volantis are full of relore worshipping slaves. Volantis is screwed, folks. I believe we're going to see it fall and fall spectacularly. I've seen it compared to Atlantis. The name is similar, and Atlantis sunk into the sea, as Volantis is already doing slowly, as we saw in the quote. Despite Roinar magic, though, and the fact that so many of the cities of the Roin are flooded, I don't know that I'd guess flooding will do in Volantis. I expect it will burn. But whether it sinks down or burns up or both, either way, it's kind of facing its own sort of mini doom somewhere close on the horizon. And the children of Mother Roin may have some small measure of revenge for what was done to them long ago. And what was done to them long ago all started over a turtle. And in a sense, a Song of Ice and Fire started on turtles too. On NPR, after George mentioned how he imagined his pet turtles as knights and kings, an interviewer asked him, wait a minute, are you telling me that the original model for the warring houses of Stark and Lannister were two turtles? And George said, yes. Turtles and spices. The Roynar themselves showed little interest in expansion. The river was their home, their mother, and their god, and few of them wished to dwell beyond the sound of her eternal song. When adventurers, exiles, and traders from the freehold of Valyria began to expand beyond the lands of the Long Summer, after the end of the Fifth Giscari War, the Roynish princes embraced them at first, and their priests declared that all men were welcome to share in the bounty of Mother Roin. As those first Valyrian outposts grew into towns, and those towns into cities, however, some Roynar came to regret the forbearance of their fathers. Amity gave way to enmity particularly upon the lower river, where the ancient city of Sarmel and the walled Valyrian town Volontheris faced each other across the waters, and on the shores of the Summer Sea, where the free city of Volantis soon rivaled the storied port of Sarhoi, each of them commanding one of Mother Roin's four mouths. The stage is set. We're given the names of the players who got it going. Sarmel versus Voluntaris and Volantis versus Sarhoi are the big names, but clearly it went beyond those. For those two sets of rivals, proximity was an issue. They appeared to have competed over trade opportunities, probably, among other things. Maybe fishing got crowded or disrupted by industry. There's lots of things neighbors could fight over. And we see how both traditional major ruler types, the princes and the priests, both were welcoming outsiders, which is about as strong as an endorsement we can get when the two, you know, most uplifted parts of society are saying, yes, do this, then that's, that's a really strong endorsement. So it's basically policy. 
But uh, again, there are all these things neighbors can fight over. Policy doesn't mean that uh, things are actually working out that well on the ground floor. The princes and priests wanted to believe this would work out, but it may not have been so smooth for the common people. Disputes between the citizens of the rival cities became ever more common and ever more rancorous, finally giving birth to a series of short but bloody wars. Sarmel and Voluntheris were the first cities to meet in battle. Legend claims that the clash began when the Valyrians netted and butchered one of the gigantic turtles the Roinar called the Old Men of the River, and held sacred as the consorts of Mother Roin herself. The first turtle war lasted less than a moon's turn. Sarmel was raided and burned, yet emerged victorious when Roinish water wizards called up the power of the river and flooded Voluntheris. Half the city was washed away, if the tales can be believed. We talked about the turtles causing wars earlier, and here we are. It may have been as simple as some, you know, unknowing Valyrian fisherman just killing the turtle without realizing how much it meant. Though seriously, how... that would be hard as hell to kill one of those things. I think it would take a lot of people <laughs> to do that. Mario and Luigi would be Valyrians, for sure, <laughs> with all their fighting turtles. I wonder if the water wizards had their own form of foretelling. I talked about that earlier. Some way of seeing in the future. Uh, like the green seers and the priests of Valor. Gazing into the flame. Why not gazing into Mother Roin, right? It's a pretty cool place to see visions, actually. This is a fun idea to play with. So did they see these wars coming, in other words? Did they see their own fall? Did they see their own cities flooded and ruined? Did they see Nymeria and Dorne? What did that mean to them if they saw that? Did they see the stone men? Did they see the doom of Valyria? in the future and misread it as their own eventual victory. A lot of possibilities here. This is very fertile ground for fun theorizing. And perhaps we'll learn more someday. You know, there's, there's more to come. There's Fire and Blood Part 2. And there's more books coming. He may delve deeper into some of this stuff. But for now, we do know that this proximity continued to cause friction. So we'll work with that. Other wars followed, however. The War of Three Princes, the Second Turtle War, the Fisherman's War, the Salt War, the Third Turtle War, the War on Dagger Lake, the Spice War, and many more. Too numerous to recount here. Cities and towns were burned, drowned, and rebuilt. Thousands were killed or enslaved. In these conflicts, the Valyrians emerged as victors more often than not. The princes of the Rhoyne, fiercely proud of their independence, fought alone. Whilst the Valyrian colonies aided one another and, when hard-pressed, called upon the power of the freehold itself. Lots of great names there, right? <laughs> the Spice War, not unlikely to be a nod to Dune, by the way, where the spice must flow is a major part of the story. It's very valuable. And so is real spices, though. Real world spices and, and spices from Essos. Very valuable. So it could be a fight over money. And it could be both. The War of Three Princes, that's a cool name. It sounds interesting. And Valyria didn't have princes, so... Maybe this is one of those rare cases where multiple Roinish city-states joined together, but obviously I'm just guessing. And earlier I made the point about Volantis needing help sometimes, right? Knowing that they could count on it when needed, and that was mentioned here. That's uh, where kind of where I got the idea. And what form did that help come in? Well, usually it would probably be money or soldiers. Sometimes it might involve sorcerers of the Freehold. And certainly there were sometimes dragons. We're not sure how often, though. Getting dragons involved might have been rare, you know? That's what I suspect. Uh, and here's why. When the wars reached a turning point, look what happened. This series of conflicts reached a bloody climax a thousand years ago in the Second Spice War, 
when three Valyrian dragon lords joined with their kin and cousins in Volantis to overwhelm, sack, and destroy Sarhoi, the great Roynar port city upon the summer sea. The warriors of Sarhoi were slaughtered savagely, their children carried off into slavery, and their proud pink city put to the torch. Afterward, the Volantines sowed the smoking ruins with salt, so that Sarhoi might never rise again. A brutal breakthrough for Volantis, and I suspect it may have been the first time the Dragon Lords got directly involved, if not one of the first. It's not hard to see why, either, if we look closely. It only took three dragons to destroy a huge city where, presumably before, armies hadn't been enough to do that, right? They're, we're told that what happened to Sarhoi shocked the Roinar because other large cities hadn't been destroyed. So it stands to reason that they weren't able to destroy these large cities until dragons got involved. We would have, in other words, we would have already seen a large Roinar city destroyed with dragons involved. And there's more, though. These dragon lords, by and large, we can assume they were absurdly, absurdly wealthy. What with conquests, paying them tribute, looting those conquests in the first place, mining operations, and then their ancestors doing all of that for who knows how long and storing up all this wealth to pass on to their descendants. Just huge, huge, uncalculable amounts of money. So, in other words, if you're trying to get a Valyrian Dragonlord interested in your business venture, your money-making venture, it's got to be pretty outstanding to get their attention. It's not going to be worth their time otherwise. And the case of Sarhoi here really shows what the Valyrians were after. That wealth was a primary driver. And of course, we have plenty of evidence that Valyrians were just lusty about wealth. They're very greedy as a, as a people. So think about what this meant for Volantis. They would have full control over the mouth of the Rhine. Now, not necessarily full control. I mean, let me caveat that a little by saying there's four mouths to the Rhine. But they'd be the only city on any of those mouths with Sarhoi gone. It was just them, those two before. And with, with Sarhoi gone, it was just the one. Now, recall what I said from the Manderley episodes and other episodes about how the mouth of a river is really valuable for trade. Now consider how much vastly larger the Roin is than the Mander or the White Knife. And how much bigger Essos is than Westeros. So you get the largest river in the world with all that river trade and all that sea trade. It might be the single most valuable like city location anywhere. And if not, it's probably really close. It's most certainly in that absurdly wealthy category that you might need to get the Valyrians' attentions. It's kind of similar in that it's like those endless mines because it's the utterly cynical and greedy exploitation of a natural resource, right? Volantis literally destroyed the competition in an extremely lucrative spot. Both sides could have continued to make out really well. They could have coexisted and made lots of money and done really well despite each other's presence. There was enough to go around, but nope. The powers that be behind the Black Walls wanted it all and got Valyria on board with destroying Sarhoi, which made all the difference. If Volantis and Sarhoi had a child, it might be a bit like Nymeria Sand, who is the daughter of Oberyn Martell and a lady of Volantis, from a family high in nobility among those permitted to live behind the Black Walls. Interestingly, Nymeria may have been named by her mother. The tale of the affair between this woman and the Red Viper would probably be a fun tale, and good chance it took place when he was in Essos with the Sellsword Company that he formed and ran for a while. 
Nymeria is an elegant woman, and very vengeful from what we've seen so far. She called for the deaths of Tywin, Jaime, Cersei, and Tommen after hearing of her father's death. She's pretty dangerous with knives, apparently, too. Oh, and she's headed to the small council to take up her father's seat with Marcella in tow. No big deal. Nothing could go wrong here. Garden Theory All right, a little detour here is needed before we continue with these wars. We love talking about the history, but as always, the reason we talk about the history is mostly because it's really fun, but because it teaches us things about the future. I've talked about that a lot this episode, and that's because it comes up so much. You know, I I bet a lot of people thought an episode on Nymeria would be fun, but you probably didn't realize how much relevance it has to so many different ongoing storylines. Here's another one. There's another story here to be told with regard to the destruction of Sarhoi, which is why I can't tell it later. We gotta talk about it now, even though it interrupts our wars. <laughs> but because the destruction of Sarhoi is seems really similar to something that a lot of people have theorized is coming. So it might be foreshadowing, in other words. An important detail George R. R. Martin mentions about Sarhoi, a city overlooking the sea, is that it has saltwater gardens. And the city itself is made of pink marble. The water gardens of Dorne overlook the sea. And are made of pink marble. Does this matter? Is that just some common details? Well, what I like to do in cases like this is look at how unique these common traits are. If there's a lot of pink marble out there, then this is probably meaningless. Pink marble appears in a few other places along the Rhoyne, and there's mention of some on Velos near Valyria, but that was wiped out by the Doom, and there are no other mentions in Westeros, and none anywhere else, period, excepting ruins. So the water gardens of Dorne are the only standing pink marble structure we're told about in the known world. The water gardens of Dorne were made for Daenerys. Was the desert too hot for her? Is it meant to be symbolic that the desert was too hot even for a dragon? None other than Meraxes was slain in Dorne at the Hellholt, a very hot sounding place, and it is. So the water gardens of Dorne are filled with children, many of whom are nobles. Noble children tend to make good hostages, and the people of Sarhoi were enslaved when it was destroyed. As for how Sarhoi was destroyed, it was burned, mostly, so it seems, by three dragons. So what am I saying? Well, I think the water gardens are going to be destroyed, quite possibly by fire, not necessarily by dragons, but that's on the table too, especially if Doran sides with Aegon VI over Daenerys, making them her enemy. Which is itself not unlikely, given Danny may be blamed for Quentin's death, right? And Aegon VI has to jump on her. He's there already, already making allies, already about to talk to Arianne, already starting things. Where, well, Daenerys is on, in the Dothraki Sea. <laughs> so if we're right about this, then there's more to consider. Those kids will probably be taken hostage, but it could get ugly. Might not, might be some casualties along the way. Doran Martell may very well be there to watch the worst. Maybe a bit like Aaron the Great. Instead of watching the kids play, he might have to watch them, well, you know. Let that sink in like Volantis is sinking. We'll learn who has good fortune in the wars to come later, though. Let's get back to the wars that have already come, and remember to keep our eyes and ears peeled for more clues as to future plots like this one. The Lands of Ice and Fire maps reveal that Daenerys passes through Goyandro not long after leaving Pentos, on her way to Vase Dothrak with Khal Drogo. Tyrion follows the same path when he leaves Pentos with Illyrio to meet up with the Shy Maid and head on downriver. But, curiously, there's a Valyrian road running from Pentos to Goyandro, a city Tyrion notes was destroyed by dragons. 
since the Valyrians probably didn't build a road from Pentos to a ruin, what does that mean? Did the Roinar and Valyrians here get along so well that the Valyrians built this road to share with them? Garen the Great. Since the Roinar were so independent, and the histories aren't as detailed as they could be, we only know of two great Roinar figures who reunited their people. One, of course, is Nymeria, and she was extremely successful with it. The other came right before her and directly contributed to the circumstances that Nymeria and her people found themselves in before she unified them. This first person was Prince Garen of Croyane, and he rose to prominence after the destruction of Sarhoi. Finally, something had gotten through to the overly independent Roinar that they needed to band together, or, in Prince Garen's words, quote, we shall all be slaves unless we join together to end this threat. Only Nymeria spoke against him. Not that banding together was a bad idea, but that they could not win this war he intended to start. She must have advocated for peace, perhaps arguing that, I don't know, they could use a peace to buy time to come up with a better long-term solution. But even her own warriors were against her. They kind of shouted her down, in a sense, and she relented to overwhelmingly popular opinion. Garen's plan would be carried out. We don't know a lot about him. He was a warrior prince, and as ruler of Croyane, he was clearly wealthy and powerful, given his city was considered the greatest on the Rhoyne. Given the later curse famously named for him, he may have been a known water wizard, or at least a, I don't know, damp wizard? Wet willy? I don't know. What do you call that? A line from Ferio Forel's play, Wrath of the Dragon Lords, has Prince Garen saying, quote, It shall go ill for any man who fails me. Which hints at an imperious personality, but this is just a play. And also may have related to some sense of urgency, like, hey, we all got to do this right or we're all doomed. So no screw ups, that kind of thing. An interesting comparison, though, is Darkstar, who himself disparages Garen as a bit of a loser because he led a quarter of a million men to, to their deaths. Yet, ironically, Darkstar wanted to kill Marcella to start a war against the Iron Throne, which would probably be a disaster for Dorne. In both cases, we have a man clamoring for war against a superior foe. Like Nymeria speaking up against Garen, Arianne was against Darkstar's plan to start a war, but both Gerald Dane and Garen the Great got their wish. War hasn't come to Dorne yet, to be clear, to be fair, and Marcella's injury may not cause it directly, but war is coming to Dorne one way or the other, and the descendants of the Roinar will suffer. It probably won't go bad right away. I mean, it might go well for a time. Obviously, we can't expect this kind of parallel to be too perfect, but that is what happened for Garen and his army. He gathered them all at his festival city, not the typical festival, but it would have been a spectacle nonetheless, all those soldiers and ships. Because he split the huge host into three parts and marched south towards the Valyrian cities. One part of the army was on the western side, another on the east, and the third was a fleet sweeping the river clean. We'll let the World of Ice and Fire pick up the tale from here. At Selhoris he won his first battle, overwhelming a Valyrian army 30,000 strong and taking the city by storm. Valisar met the same fate. At Volantheris, Garen found himself facing a 100,000 foes, a 100 war elephants, and three dragon lords. Here too he prevailed, though at great cost. Thousands burned, but thousands more sheltered in the shallows of the river, whilst their wizards raised enormous water spouts against the foes' dragons, Roynish archers brought down two of the dragons, whilst the third fled, wounded. In the aftermath, Mother Roin rose enraged to swallow Volantheris. That's another example of the flooding being large and clearly in favor of the Roinar, right? The timing was uh, right in their favor, right during a war. Also, we have this mention of these huge armies, a hundred elephants, too. What a sight to imagine. Another awesome visual uh, image there. Kind of think about that for a minute. 
But given all the consideration regarding the future of Danny's dragons, the idea that Roynish archers brought down two of them is eyebrow raising. See? Eyebrows are up. Perhaps these archers actually used, you know, large scorpion bolts. Something that weren't really arrows. Or big arrows. You know, giant arrows. But if we're talking actual normal arrows, there could be sorcery helping the aim, the bow, the arrows, or all three. Kind of like what people accuse Bloodraven of doing with his long shots at the Redgrass Field. If, it's something to wonder about, though, for sure, either way. And I say that because during the Dance of the Dragons, regular archers didn't do much at all to dragons. There's one case of a dragon being killed by an arrow to the eye, and that was a case of mercy. The dragon Tessarion was already dying, and thus not exactly a hard target. Still, it took Lord Blackwood's best archer, who had to fire three shots in the dragon's eye to finish her, and she was kind of on the younger side. She wasn't even like a big adult dragon. Point being, dragons are hard to kill with regular arrows, so I'm suspicious. Perhaps this is a major factor as to how the war escalated as well. Thereafter, men began to name the victorious prince Garin the Great, and it is said that in Volantis, great lords trembled in terror as his host advanced. Rather than face him in the field, the Valentines retreated back behind their black walls and appealed to the freehold for help. What I mean is, maybe they told certain connected families that their holdings in Volantis and thus great wealth was at risk. Maybe the freehold didn't like the idea of dragons being defeated. They didn't want people saying that. We can't have word spreading that our dragons were beaten, right? Whatever the reason was, whatever got them moving, the appeals for help were heard. And the dragons came. Not three, as Prince Garin had faced at Volantheris, but three hundred or more, if the tales that have come down to us can be believed. Against their fires, the Roynar could not stand. Tens of thousands burnt, whilst others rushed into the river, hoping that the embrace of Mother Roin would offer them protection against dragon flame, only to drown in their mother's embrace. Some chroniclers insist that the fires burned so hot that the very waters of the river boiled and turned to steam. Three dragons is a deliberate choice by George R. R. Martin. He could have made the number of the counting four. Five would not have been right out, not at all. Princess Nymeria, Prince Garen, not King Arthur, but also the notion of hiding in the water. No, not the Lady of the Lake. I keep, I refer to avoiding dragon flame, a notion that's been around since Danny's House of the Undying Visions. Let me remind you all of a key line from said visions, quote, beneath the mother of mountains, a line of naked crones crept from a great lake and knelt shivering before her, their great heads bowed. This appears to be the crones of the Dosh Kaleen kneeling in submission before Danny, and I've long believed, like many others, that they'd take shelter in the lake when she came on them with Drogon's fire. So, you can see why I'm making this connection here. And of course, we have this also from Danny. Quote, 10,000 slaves lifted blood-stained hands as she raced by on her silver, riding like the wind. Mother, they cried. Mother, mother. They were reaching for her. 10,000 slaves... 10,000 ships full of people who would have been enslaved? I think we have another parallel, ladies and germtlemen. Tens of thousands of others did not escape and were enslaved. Probably a lot more than tens of thousands, really. Valyria had quite a cruel windfall, and the palaces of the wealthy would soon be filled with the children of the Rhoyne, not only orphaned, but enslaved. And in a land of great heat and death, instead of cool waters and life, of screams instead of music. It was this future Garen foresaw for his people, not through magic, 
but through common sense. That's what the Valyrians do, right? Very cruel things. Like what they did to him. He was captured alive and forced to watch the fall of his people. And this is when he had his time to contemplate what was coming. But he probably knew this ahead of time. It was why he gathered everyone to fight in the first place. Because he saw this potential future. And it did come to pass. He was captured alive and forced to watch the fall of his people. It started with the slaughter of his army. And the harbor of Volantis was said to turn the color of blood. Then they gathered their armies having been used for defense and advanced with them, sacked Sarmel, enslaving the people while destroying it and presumably all the smaller towns along the way. Reprisal for Garen's campaign was swift and brutal and he was made to watch it all. Locked in a golden cage at the command of the Dragon Lords, Garen was carried back to the festival city to witness its destruction. At Croyan, the cage was hung from the walls so that the prince might witness the enslavement of the women and children whose fathers and brothers had died in his gallant, hopeless war. But the prince, it is said, called down a curse upon the conquerors, entreating Mother Royne to avenge her children. And so, that very night, the Royne flooded out of season and with greater force than was known in living memory. A thick fog full of evil humours fell, and the Valyrian conquerors began to die of grayscale. Interestingly, the story of Garen ends here. We don't hear about his final moment, his actual moment of death. Perhaps he, too, contracted the grayscale inflicted on his captors. Or perhaps the survivors put him out of his misery. Perhaps, maybe, maybe they carried him all the way back to Valyria and dropped him in a volcano like he was the One Ring. Or maybe they used his royal blood for spells, or experiments, or experimental spells. Maybe they dropped his golden cage in the water, letting him drown in his mother's embrace. Maybe somewhere in Mother Roin's depths is a golden cage with a skeleton, or a stone prince locked inside for eternity. Think of all the cities that are on the Roin now. And think of how many there would have been at the height of the Roinar people. A lot more. It's a staggering amount. And a huge portion of that population was enslaved by the Freehold. Garen's curse was said to have created Grayscale, but it was the Doom that truly took out the Freehold. Some suggest in turn that the Doom was the real Garen's curse. I don't think so. But there's certainly a way we can imagine the Doom coming at the hands of those with blood of the Roinar in their veins. Though I suggested many would be enslaved in palaces... Quite a few others would most likely end up in those deep, dark mines beneath the 14 flames that the Valyrians got so much wealth out of. The same mines where the Faceless Man originated. No one knows who the first Faceless Man was, but given the magic in their people, perhaps it was a slave of Roinish descent. Hmm? It would be rather fitting for the Roinar to have a hand in taking down Valyria through a blood descendant born deep in fire. The doom wouldn't come for another roughly few centuries, we'll say. So it would be a distant kinship, to be sure. But that shouldn't bother us too much. We see bloodlines lasting for long periods of time in A Song of Ice and Fire. We see magical blood sticking around. And we're going to see that specifically in the case of the Roinar blood, and how it still sticks around, still very strongly, especially in Dorne, but in a few other places too. Exodus. Higher on the Rhoyne, in Nysar, Princess Nymeria soon received the news of Garin's shattering defeat and the enslavement of the people of Croyan and Sarmel. The same fate awaited her own city, she saw. 
Accordingly, she gathered every ship that remained upon the Rhoyne, large or small, and filled them full of as many women and children as they could carry, for almost all the men of fighting age had marched with Garin and died. Down the river Nymeria led this ragged fleet, past ruined and smoking towns and fields of the dead, through waters choked with bloated, floating corpses. To avoid Volantis and its hosts, she chose the older channel and emerged into the summer sea, where once Sarhoi had stood. Like Garen, Nymeria didn't need magical foresight to see what was coming for her people after they lost. She knew the Valyrians, and there was nothing to be done but flee. As painful as it was to leave their mother, what choice did they have? Well, actually, some actually did think they had a choice, and we'll see that the call of Mother Roin is incredibly potent, enough to make people make bad decisions. But these are always people in a very tough spot making these bad decisions, so we'll, we'll be fair to them in that. These, these tough spots include exotic locations like the Basilisk Isles, Sothorios, Nath, the Summer Islands, those peoples, creatures, and unexplained phenomena, and all those decisions related, good or bad, well, that will be the story of our next episode on Nymeria. It will be called 10,000 Ships. Join us for it. Until then, Valar reread us. Reroinus. Oh, damn it. Well, it's in there. I said it. Come discuss this episode in our Facebook group. It's easily findable on Facebook. History of Westeros podcast is what it's called. There's a couple of easy questions meant to weed out bots and trolls. So you need to answer them to get in. But other than that, we're not trying to keep anybody out. It's just a very simple countermeasure. Now, there's other fun stuff there, too. It's not just discussions about this and past episodes. For example, Ashea posted some outtakes from the recording of this episode in there. We love to do fun stuff like that. So there's definitely extras available there. There were a lot of quotes in this episode from the World of Ice and Fire. In fact, more than half of them. So, I'm a big fan of that book, of course. And if you have never actually purchased it, if you haven't gone through all of it, I highly recommend audible.com. The World of Ice and Fire through audiobook is a great way to take it all in because you can do other things while you're doing it. You can be out doing chores, you can be walking the dogs, you can be taking care of your kids, whatever. It's a great way to combine two activities. It makes chores fun. I think that's a great thing. That's the thing about podcasts, too, but it works great for audiobooks. So you can uh, get two free audiobook downloads from Audible by going to historyofwesteros.com and clicking on the link in the right sidebar. Even if you don't keep the subscription, you get to keep those two free downloads. So I basically just told you how to get a free copy of uh, The World of Ice and Fire on Audible. Now, you may like the subscription and keep it and pay for it, but if you don't, you just got a free copy of the World of Ice and Fire on audio. That's great. Ashea is the best, and that's true whether she's in front of or behind the camera. For this episode, of course, she did a lot of the production, video work especially, and recording. Big thanks to Rainey's Targaryen for helping me with the script. She did a lot of uh, catches on my timeline stuff, as always. That's her expertise, but she's... Caught me making a few other mistakes as well and added a few nice thoughts as, uh, on top of that. So even more than usual, she helped with this episode. Thanks to Mikal Schick of Hypable and Vassals of Kingsgrave for the voice work in this one. Big thanks to Michael Klarfeld for the maps and the video intro. Check him out at claradox.de. He's currently working on a map of Dorne. 
He's already done an Iron Islands one, which we're going to have on display in a future episode. Thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse Koal for the intro and outro music, respectively. Also thanks to my good friend Rudy Edwards for reading the headers this time. If you want to support the show, you can rate us on iTunes. You'd be surprised how much value that has for getting us noticed. Leaving a review helps even more. To support us financially, go to historyofwesteros.com and there's a variety of ways to help. The main way, but not the only way, is through Patreon. Thanks to supporters like the mysterious BR, Hand of the King, Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, and Warden of the West, Lord George Stormsville the Cunning, Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East, Kabeth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Defender of the Old Gods, and Warden of the North. Lady Kelly McMath of Covington, Lady of the Villa Hills and Crescent Springs, Warden of the South. My Hand of the Queen position is currently open, so please, for the love of the many-faced god, please give me a hand. Lord James Tuttle is King of the Stepstones in the Narrow Sea, Commander of the Royal Fleet, consisting of the Narrow Fleet led by Flagship Caraxes and the Bloodstone Fleet led by Flagship Prince Damon. Lord James was heard recently to say that if he had been around during Nymeria's time, she never would have made it to Westeros. Charlotte Oster, Corsair Queen of the Western Shivering Sea, is commander of the Briny Fleet, whose flagship is the barnacle-encrusted Violet-Hulled Mercenaria. She carries the nacre-inlaid shucking blade, Crass Lover. And the Corsair Queen is said to have replied, claiming that the King of the Stepstones would be the one to have not made it, and Nymeria would have easily sailed on. The small council consists of Lord James Inkblade, the Scholar Knight, Master of Whisperers, Lord Robert Jacobs, Master of Coin, Lord Daniel, the Sneaky Russian, Master of Ships, Grand Maester Via James, and Lord Benjen of House Hornwood, Master of Laws. Currently, the Queen's High Council has two members, Lady Mai Emerald Eyes, Voice of House Swan, Mistress of Whisperers, and Grand Maester M. Elizabeth, Middle Daughter of Lyanna Mormont, First Lady to forge both the Silver and Valyrian Steel Link. So if you're interested in joining the Queen's High Council, let us know on Patreon. Meanwhile, the Queen's Guard is full up with Lord Captain Commander Hema Helminth, the Sellsword Sentinel, Lady Nymeria of House Seapurtle, Alexander of House Atreides from the Seat of Doom, I Must Not Fear, Fear is the Mind Killer, Becca the Bard, Songbird of the North, Sir Eric Redbeard Odinson, Wielder of Tempest, a monstrous Warhammer, Michonne the Melodious, Star of Old Town, Mine's Over Masters, and Sarah Rambo, Knight of House Ganon, First Blood. The Alpha Patron is Lady Direliz of Castle Nyaki. Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell is Breaker of the Second Stone. Lord Skip of the Velt is Lord of Castle Ganges. Gregor the Toasty is Lord of the Breadfort. Alicia Everlasting of the Green Blood is Lady of Desert Rose. Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Lord Garen de Havilland is of Devil's Hand Keep. Ashlyn Winter is the Hawk's Eye, Lady of Castle Skyfall. Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance. The Lord of the Halls of Castle Hillcrest is wielder of the Valyrian Seal Machete Everglazed. Lord Alistair Whitaker is Lord of the Dawnhold. Lord Bemmy Snugglebunny is guardian of the Hidden Hundred Acre Werewood, dual-wielding Glorious Morning and Little Lightwise. And keeping me on my toes for pronunciation. Brian the Defender is Lord of the Spearfort and the Freelands, last scion of Clan McCulloch, Strength and Courage. The Bastard of the Wolfswood is First Forester of the Old Gods, sworn to House Ironwarewood. Listen for the silence. Connor the Dungeon Master is Lord of Catamount Keep and Guardian of the Smoky Mountain Pass. Lady Baelish is Dark Widow of Harrenhal. 
Lord Sidney Jesse is the Fallborn, Lord of Blue Spring. Sir Valentin of House to Jen is creator of the Game of Predictions, free Game of Thrones predictions slash futures market. Lady Liana Kelly of Wolf Island is protectoress of the Steelhold. And Casey Stark is of House Acres. Our King's Justice is Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate. Our Council of the Beard is led by Lady Suzanne Sinistral, the learned holder of the left-handed Valyrian shears called Penance, Mistress of Laws. Our Kingsguard is led by the Smiling Wolf Lord Commander Stephen Stark, cartographer of kings who earned a white cloak through wisdom and learning as much as skill at arms. Our Night's Watch is led by Lord Commander Benjen Umber, the Silent Giant, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Greatsword Winter's Kiss, and First Steward Sir Jurion of the Torrentine, called Pale Wind. Welcome to Stephanie the Peerless, Dwarf of the Lowlands, Sir Rutherford the Brave, Knight of the Lizards and Wilson's Bane, Carol of the House of Black and White and Red All Over, the podcast that.com family of podcasts. Hey guys. Mary of House Frumius, Keeper of the Library and the Trees. And Mara, Woods Witch of the Werewood Grove, sworn to Shepard of the Whispering Children. That concludes this episode of History of Westeros. Thank you for listening. Valar, reread us. <laughs>